Can we jump ahead to one of my bugbears? Mm. Please. Um, so play it again, Sham. <laughs> yeah. At the end. And like, it's not a reference. Yeah. It's a reference to a fake reference. Yeah. yeah. That's okay, not in the though. movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he had, I mean, look. It's a sham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It is a it's sham. It's the play it again, Sham. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing moving pictures. So basically a bunch of film fans talking a bunch of flim flam. And our guest is academic and writer Dan Golding. Welcome, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're very excited to have you here. Of course, mm. we, if there was any book that we wanted to get you on, <laughs> of course yeah. we wanted you to talk about today's book because you do have a particular area of expertise, don't you? Yeah. And you, you're very interested in film. I am. Yeah. Well, I, I teach film a lot of the time, but I, I mean, I love it. Film and music, film music particularly, but film is is such a huge passion of mine. So it's it's the perfect pratchet to, to jump into the podcast with, I think. Yeah. Mm. And and look, you know, listeners may recognise your voice from another podcast, The Art of the Score, where yeah. you discuss film scores. It's a great podcast. Um, mm. And actually, just to get this out of the way, we'll do we'll do the other questions at the end of the show. But someone did, when we made a call out for questions and announced you'd be on the show, just say, <laughs> ask Dan about Star Wars music. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Yeah, like, I mean, I can talk for how long does this podcast go oh, for? Like, it, oh, a couple of hours? Yeah, almost. yeah, yeah. I can, well, I mean, do you want to get to the book? Because I can just do the whole thing on. <laughs> yeah. so. I, I think we'll stick to the yeah. book. Dramatic reading. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll just get you to read the score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, if you want to hear Dan talk about Star Wars music, there are at least four episodes yeah. of The Art of the Score covering it. Yeah, there are. We did, God, how many on. Two parter uh, on the on, first on one. On A New Hope. Yeah. yeah. And the two parter. On uh, the Force Awakens. Oh, that was a two-parter. And later in this year, um, we are going to do uh, the Empire Strikes Back oh. to tie in with the uh, Melbourne Symphony's performance of the score, which will be great. I can't wait. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that's very exciting. So, mm. if yeah, if you're not listening to Art of the Score, I highly recommend it. It's one of my favourite must-listen podcasts. Now, Dan, this is not your first Pratchett book that you've read, though, is it? No, it's not. I read a lot of Pratchett books uh, when I was a kid. Um, and Well, not a kid, really. More like a teenager, I think. I, I didn't discover him until, I'd say, high school, probably. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly haven't read them all. But I've read, I was um, going through the list, you know, the, in the, the, the opening of the book and um, realized that I read way more than I thought I had. If you'd asked me prior to this, I'd sort of gone, um, I don't know, I've read maybe three. But looking at the list, I was like, oh, yeah, I've read maybe more like 10. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's um, good. Yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, I, yeah, I love Pratchett. I love his sense of humor. I love the kind of embrace of knowledge that his books take, I think. You know, the embrace of getting the joke and valuing that process. And is it mostly Discworld books that you've read? Yeah, entirely Discworld, I think, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we are reading a Discworld book today, and mm. as we've alluded to, the book that we are reading is Moving Pictures, mm -hmm. and we do like to start with a reading of the blurb, so uh, from the more recent paperback edition, 
here it is. Alchemists have always thought that they can change reality, shape it to their own purpose. Imagine then the damage that could be wrought on the Discworld if they get their hands on the ultimate alchemy, the invention of motion pictures, the greatest making of illusions. It may be a triumph of universe-shaking proportions. It's either that, or they're about to unlock the dark secret of the Hollywood Hills. By mistake. Oh, that's sinister. Oh. I, don't know. I like that blurb. We, we often... We, today's the first day we actually read all the blurbs to decide which one we'd read. And that one, oh, it's creepy. I like yeah. it. Yeah, and often they just don't say the best bit of the book, which yeah. I wonder what the, the reasoning of that is. Yeah. But yeah, this one, I think it sums it up quite well. Mm. Well, the, uh, I mean, I'm also glad that we read that one because the other one, like, reveals a couple of the, the jokes mm. from the book. So we'll get to those yeah. yeah, so it sort of opens on the imagery of space, um, which... I have to confess that I, I got a bit over quite quickly um, <laughs> in terms of books starting that way. I prefer it when it's like death appearing over mm. a thing. And then it starts talking about the fabric of reality, which is important to this book. Mm. And then after that, we are introduced to a new character very briefly, um, who's the last keeper of the door who dies. Oh, yeah. Mm. Deccan Rybobe. Yeah. Mm. What a great name. Yeah. I was uh, digging around for a pun, but I was just, I couldn't find one. <laughs> so if anyone does. Yeah. I loved that his kind of sole responsibility was to train somebody else up and he never got around to it. <laughs> yeah. We well, had to go to the lavatory. Like, yeah. Didn't he? Like every day. Like, oh, yeah. And then do. <laughs> but I think that's such a relatable thing, isn't it? That like you had sort of one thing to do to pass on your knowledge and you just didn't really have time to do that because you were just doing all the other small things that life requires of you. Yeah. Yeah. You had one big plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and he's stuck out in the Hollywood where mm. there's nobody else around because mm. it's this sort of yeah. accursed place. Yeah, very lonely. Life. But it is, it's very typical for a Pratchett book to begin, particularly a Discworld book to begin with someone dying mm. and that kicking off the plot. And I, it's, I, I think I'm, we mentioned that in a recent episode and as this one started with another, like, person we'd never met before dying to kick off events, I'm like, oh, this is really <laughs> a thing that he does, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But it, and it was kind of, he's kind of a sad figure, mm. you know, Deccan. Mm. Yeah, mm. he spent all this time alone, occasionally being brought fish from the distant plains mm. and then just dying alone. And as we find out later, no one really notices mm. for months. Mm. Mm. I mean, and uh, we always enjoy a death cameo. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this is that death kind of indicates he does know what's going to happen to Deccan after he sort of leaves yeah. death, which is not normally the case. He sort of just says, well, that's none of my business. I'm just here to send you on your way. But this sort of reveals that he does know. It's mm. just that he doesn't usually tell anyone or, or talk about it. So <laughs> I thought that was interesting. And we don't find out, but we get his reaction to finding out. Yeah. Don't we, I think? Yeah, yeah. The re- yeah. we as the reader don't find yeah. out. But yeah, he yeah. seems quite satisfied that that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, but then the action cuts to Ankh-Morpork as the idea floats away and finds itself some alchemists who suddenly invent octocellulose, mm. <laughs> which implies there's some other kind of cellulose yeah. <laughs> on the disc world. Um, and it's super flammable, Yeah, which is the case for actual yeah. cellulose, right? Actual cellulose. Yeah. In fact, that's the, the, the plot of the finale of um, Inglorious Bastards, yeah. Tarantino's film, right? Um, with the, the fire in the theatre that sort of kills Hitler and his henchmen, well, sort of anyway. Very dangerous in fact, if I can digress weirdly, um, no, please do. <laughs> there's a recent story in the news about the ABC building in Ultimo, where I've worked 
um, recently quite a lot uh, and um, discovering that the cladding at that building is not safe and sort of them frantically sending round messages saying, please, if you've got like old material, I like film equipment, you know, make sure it's okay. Don't put it all together, move papers away from it because, you know, wow. the building will will go up basically. Wow. So it's, wow. yeah, kind of terrifying. But anyway, still, still surprisingly, although, you know, people have long since moved on from using cellulite to film things, yeah. still uh, kind of a legacy issue for the film industries and, and screen industries, weirdly enough. Film stock was used in theatres up until the 2000s. Um, yeah, it was, cinemas I've worked at, mm. I, I was there in the crossover period between them, so you'd see the upstairs cinema have the reel brought down mm. for the downstairs screening of it, and it just like would take two people because if it was a long film. Mm. So, yeah, it's They're not, huge reels. Not yeah. long ago. Mm. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's actually, uh, to, to go back to Star Wars yet again, sorry, it's a, how long has it been? Um, uh, George Lucas actually, I think, can be widely credited with killing film, uh, because, not just because of the quality of the prequels, but because of um, episode two in particular, he demanded that, um, you know, it, it widely be shown on digital prints. Right. Um, and that sort of forced a lot of cinemas to start switching over um so and attack of the clones was 2002 there you go well and and cellulose they invent octocellulose and then immediately they know how to make moving pictures <laughs> yeah that's because it's not them coming up with it they're the conduits through which hollywood is showing its, mm. its powers mm-hmm. yeah i have to say i mean and maybe this will be my reoccurring thought for really the, the book actually is that i kind of enjoyed and also found it the biggest departure even though obviously it's not purporting to be anything real mm. but you know is is obviously parodying the birth of of hollywood single word in the the non-pratchett universe is that in our universe people cast around for a really long time to figure out what film was going to be mm. and you know once the actual technological invention was there and once even the audience was clearly interested in cinema it still took um, you know, several years for people to go, ah, oh, it's, it's storytelling. It's showing sort of spectacle. That's what we're going to do with this. That's what people want. Before then, it was sort of like, I don't know. There was this weird, really weird, like, month where people were sort of like, X-rays is that's that's the artistic <laughs> medium of the future. Wow. And, and, and film, that's going to be just instructional. Did and just everyone who did the x-rays die before it yeah. caught on? Because if yeah. you don't wear the right stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very strange thought. This book does kind of play with that to some degree. Certainly with, you know, later on, you know, yeah. the sort of discovery that, you know, spectacle and a thousand elephants and, you know, storytelling and blockbusters is going to be much more interesting than, you know, whatever it is, an interesting tale of, yeah. or, you know, or oh, an, yeah, an yeah. instructional. Electrocuting an elephant. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Imagine yeah, if that was just what film, film was hmm. now still. Like, oh, it's time of the year to go watch the Elephant Electrocution movie. Yeah, horrific. Yeah, mm. yeah, weird, isn't it? But it's it does, yeah, it jumps very much from that very early days of film to mm. the kind of golden age of Hollywood. Mm. And I just want to address the fact that I am very much the non-cinephile at the table, <laughs> so I hope I'm using that phrase correctly. Yeah. You know, when, when the blockbuster was invented mm. and when, when the studio the stars. movie stars came mm. from and they became a big deal. Mm. Um, it's all in there. Plus um, Predator. 
Yeah, plus Predator. <laughs> yeah, it's got, it's got references to everything. It's yeah. not just the golden era. Yeah. Actually, one early reference is not a film reference at all, really, because we are introduced quite early on in this book to a character who is, does not actually have that big a role in this book. I was a bit surprised, but is goes on to have a very important role in the Discworld, which is uh, Mustrum Ridcully, new Arch-Chancellor mm. of right. Unseen University, mm. who uh, is introduced to us as Ridcully the Brown. Um, who is chosen because he's one of those, you know, sort of all the beasts are his friend types. He's very much presented as a parody of Radagast the Brown or like an anti-Druid, you know, like he hangs out in nature all the time and he's (laughs) sort of into nature magic, but mostly because he likes to shoot animals. Mm. Like it's quite... Uh, I'd forgotten his origins. It's been so long since I've read this book. He wants beer for breakfast and it like throws a bursa into like a tailspin as well. I'm really not that interested in anything actually to do with magic or wizarding. I I loved his introduction, the discussion, you know, at the beginning, because my day job, I work at a university um, where they say, um, in fact, I wanted to see uh, you about one of the students, Master. And he's a student, spark the (laughs) Arch-Chancellor. Yes, Master, you know, they're the thinner ones with the pale faces because we're a university. They come with a whole thing like rats. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, I've definitely met not necessarily academics, but administration people at universities who are sort of like, ah, yes, students, that's what we have to do here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's unfortunate. (laughs) And I just thought that was the most brilliant introduction. (laughs) Yeah. I used to say that the only thing that was more bureaucratic than government was university (laughs) because that was certainly my experience as a student and and working in a university sometimes. So we do meet him. We meet, and and we don't just meet him. We also meet a bunch of other characters from the university who go on to be regulars. But at the start, we really only meet the bursar. Um, who never gets a name. Um, we never find out what his name is. <laughs> it's not important. Um, but, you know, we progress quickly to the first screening of uh, a moving picture, as they mm. call them, uh, in the Alchemist Guild. But the idea is already starting to find other people by this stage, including the mind of one cut-me-own-throat Dibbler, yeah. uh, who seems perfectly suited to this mysterious idea that's floated out <laughs> of Hollywood. He is the sort of archetypal early Hollywood producer, isn't he? For sure. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, again, that's that's what I loved about this is the playing with that is that Hollywood, the town in our universe, I'm going to continue to refer to it as our universe rather than the real universe because I feel that's doing a disservice to At least to you don't it. refer to it as the present and the past like yeah. I found I do with Game of Thrones. I'm like, oh, back then. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. The Hollywood was founded uh, largely um, for financial reasons because Thomas Edison was suing everybody who wanted to make movies. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because he'd set up shop in New Jersey, I think, and, you know, was using, you know, the laws in the eastern states of America to control his patent, his moving image technology. And so people were like, well... California doesn't have such, you know, he, he basically can't sue us if we move to the other side of the country. Wow. Um, and also Hollywood had, um, you know, great weather. You can film whenever. Um, it's a whole bunch of different geographic locations. Uh, and, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, so that, that, that's, that's one of the main reasons. And so it cut me on throat sort of seeing a business opportunity. I mean, that's how... The real Hollywood was... Ah, I said real. Uh, That's all right. You're doing so well. How our Hollywood was created. So Edison's the university and wizards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the alchemists are all the don't sue us. Yep, basically. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I really enjoyed uh, in this early part of the book too is how so many of the things we now take for granted 
as being part of cinema culture and mm. film culture came much later. Mm. But the first time that they screen a film, someone comes up with the idea of popcorn. Banged grains. I loved that. That's yeah. almost my favourite part of this book is just the, the references to banged grains. Yeah. <laughs> They've gone soggy. It's okay. It's dark. They won't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having worked in the cinema, there was just so much... I don't know, stuff I enjoyed from around the edges of it as well. Mm. It's, yeah. it's interesting, the, the sort of cultural history of popcorn in, in cinema. Although popcorn was a really popular snack at around the same time that cinema was, was born as a popular art form, it wasn't really um, sold in cinemas until synchronised sound. Mm. And partly that's because the sort of class demographics changed in the, up until that point. It was very much um, the same demographic that would go to a, a theatre. Mm. Right. Rich people there to look at the beautiful architecture of the... the yeah, the um, theatre. The mm. theatre and get dressed up. They didn't want banged grains uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sullying the carpets. And, you know, it was a very sort of lower class snack. But when... Um, sound came along it just you know the the class demographics shifted enormously and they were sort of like well yeah let's let's get some uh some popcorn in and to go to your point of sort of um popcorn not really being there at the birth of cinema well it was but it just wasn't really encouraged right and so um yeah it changed but yeah, I, yeah, I love that. Plus, Wait. the sound would have drowned out the people right. eating it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although silent films were never silent. Sorry, that's like one of my yeah. my bugbears. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> when we talk about films with sound, we, as you use the phrase, you mean synchronized sound, as in mm. sound audio that is recorded to be played along with the film, yeah. rather than live musical accompaniment or mm. anything else. Yeah. yeah. Can we jump ahead to one of my bugbears, mm. please? Um, so play it again, Sham. <laughs> yeah. At the end. And like, it's not a reference. Yeah. It's a reference to a fake reference. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> not okay, in the movie. Though. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he had, to, I mean, look. It's a sham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It is a it's sham. It's the play it again, Sham. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's like a meta reference. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe that. Yeah. Terry Pratchett. There's so many little references in there. We'll try and catch them all, but you know, mm. can you? It's like, it's like catching Pokemon in this mm. book. Like there's mm. at least a hundred yeah. in here. And every time you read it, you catch a few more. <laughs> yeah. But even from the start, though, we're, we're introduced to the the Hollywood, which mm. is the location where the, the idea comes from. And very soon, that's where movie production moves to. The alchemists decide to do it outside the city, partly because they don't want any trouble from the wizards because they, they know that this feels a bit magical. And if you're not a wizard, you're doing magic, you're getting a lot of trouble in Angmorpork. Mm. But if you go outside, you'll be okay. Although they, I love how much trouble they go to to stress that it's not magical. <laughs> yeah. Even they call it the unmagical lantern at yeah. one point, which I thought was yeah. great. Can I just quickly say, I have read this book before, but I'd forgotten literally everything from it except for Victor's exam strategy, <laughs> which is to know everything so well that you can choose what percentage you get on the exam. Because yeah. I remember coveting that really badly during <laughs> wow. uni. Yeah. And the other thing was um, Dibbler's subliminal messaging. Mm. And those are the two things I remember from this film. Oh, that, see, that's interesting because like, I'd totally forgotten that Victor was even a wizard. I'd forgotten Victor entirely, yeah. which seems ridiculous. But you remembered the exam strategy. Yeah, yeah. and the subliminal messaging. Yeah. yeah, well, maybe the exam strategy was a subliminal Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, just I did it. like that. I also like the strategy of the university to overcome that, of just giving him one question, yeah. which is, what is your name? It's great. <laughs> yeah. And is that a reference to Monty Python? Could be. I wouldn't be surprised. Like, it is, but maybe it's not deliberate. But yeah, yeah. it's because it's a classic. 
Yeah. Well, as somebody who sets exams, I enjoyed the uh, dedication to thwart <laughs> the desires of the students. <laughs> Ten minutes later, he's just like, the answer to question one is... Yeah. I mean, he's a very interesting character, Victor, who we meet around this time in the book. Hmm. And that he's, he's at Unseen University. He's on a scholarship to study magic, granted by his uncle in his bequest. Uh, but he has to study. And it quite specifically says he has to score at least so much on an exam. 80%. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't ever want to pass out. So he can just stay there and enjoy the student lifestyle. It doesn't actually, I don't think it tells us exactly how long he's been there. But he's clearly been there quite a long time because he does know absolutely everything yeah. that a student wizard should know. Um, and also his his roommate is Ponder Stibbons, mm. who I did not realise was introduced in this book. I thought he came along later. And he's got a very minor role in this book, but he later becomes quite an important character, particularly in the science of Discworld books. Yeah. He's having a bad time. Like progressively in the second half of the book. Oh, yeah. Such a bad time. Well, he has it. Well, he has, you know, it balances out his comes, amazing yeah. lucky break that he has <laughs> at the start because he ends up with Victor's uh, exam question mm. when Victor doesn't come back for the exam because he's gone off for a wander over the wall for a, a drink but sees the moving picture show, which at that stage is just like projected onto a sheet in the street. And he mm. rescues Silverfish the Alchemist who gives yeah. him his card. He's like, look me up if you want to get into the clicks. Mm. Yeah. And Victor's like, oh, no. Because uh, he hasn't even seen one. But mm. then as soon as he sees one, he almost immediately finds himself in Hollywood along with a whole bunch of other people who just feel drawn there. There's like yeah. a lumbering trail of them and the image is just very nice. Like mm. this is them following this golden road yeah. to a promised city. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the kind of myth of, of Hollywood in the in the 20s and 30s that, you know, people would just go there just to try and get any break that they could. Um, I think... Um, Oh gosh, there's um an old film Sullivan's Travels with Veronica Lake, which is fantastic. I love it a lot, but that that's got a reasonably strong plot line of Veronica Lake trying to break in in a very similar sort of way um that we see in this book. And Singing in the Rain as well, sort of to mm. some degree. Yeah. By the end of the book, I was sort of looking at how long has this moving pictures industry been going on? Mm. And it's only like 2 or 3 months. Yeah. Mm. You know, and it goes from nothing to massive yeah. and then nothing again. And it's, yeah, it's like compressing that whole, um, you know, our world timeline into an incredibly short space because it's yeah. accelerated by the whole, the idea, because the idea is that golden era. Mm. And it's like, just get there, just get there. Mm. And so it tries to find the people it needs to get there, which includes Victor, although he doesn't realize it. Because even though he is like a very lazy was sort of very lazy student wizard. I love that description of him, that he's the kind of lazy that he keeps himself fit because he doesn't want to have the extra effort of having to carry yeah. around, yeah. like, you know, yeah. any extra weight. And you're like, yeah. wow, that's a very specific kind of laziness. Yeah. And his thin moustache, which is very distinctive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They yeah. do mention that quite early on. I immediately thought of Errol Flynn. Mm. When Same. thinking about what role sort of Victor is fitting into, but we were kind of discussing this before the podcast. It's not just Errol Flynn, is it? He's no, he's Clark Gable, for, and yeah, I, I had others, but then I just got stuck on Clark Gable because I wanted to also say, imagine being like the eternal face of thin mustaches, like yeah. Errol Flynn is. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like no one has superseded him. It's been more like eighty years, a hundred years mm. almost, and he's still the thin mustache mm. guy. Yeah. <laughs> they just haven't come back into fashion, really, have they? Yeah, Were they ever really. in fashion? Like, as in, like mm. he was known for it, but like, did men emulate it? Or because it's a bit too distinctive. It is very distinctive. Mm. Yeah. I feel like you need quite dark hair as well. Um, yeah, I couldn't do it. I it doesn't do work it with the ginger beard. Yeah. Yeah, no. my beard is quite light. I think it would just not work. It would look like an accident. 
Yeah, so he's Clark Gable, he's Errol Flynn. Who else yeah. is he? He's Fred Astaire for like a moment, just so that we can get the line in. Mm. Like, and so is... Um, or Ginger. Ginger. Oh, yeah, or Ginger, yeah. But she's very much not Ginger Rogers. No, although somebody... Well, she's just called Ginger because he's like the Fred Astaire character. Mm. But then, you know, that's not her real, in inverted commas, name. That's like the name that she chooses for herself, which mm. I think makes it a real name, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that was the thing that happened that Hollywood was infamous for at the time is is taking regular folk and giving them a star name. Norma Jean. Seem, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and Ruby ends up being basically Marilyn Monroe, which I thought was yeah. it's kind of great. But yeah. so does The Thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, we'll come. We'll get back to that. But you know, I'm everyone sorry. is Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> at this stage, they're still just making a whole bunch of um, of motion pictures. But they, at this stage, it's still before the arrival of Victor and Ginger. It's still kind of those very early films as the mm. kind of ones that are referenced. Like the first one that we hear the name of is is called Hijinks at the Store. What was that referencing? Do you think, Dan? Uh, I well, I don't know. I took a lot of that to be the Edison, not the Edison, the Lumiere actualities and those sorts of films, which are like pre-narrative cinema of just like here's a thing that's happening, so we'll put it on film, yeah, and show it to you. Not really interested in telling stories, and and they go through that similar moment of discovery yeah. of sort of like. What you could do a film with more than one reel, isn't it? Isn't it? I oh think yeah, they get more than five minutes. More yeah, more than five minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting that those films at the start, yeah, it's that very educational thing, mm. and they haven't even thought about narratives yet, really. Mm. Uh, and even when they start to, it's only sort of because they go, "Well, that would be interestingly historical, wouldn't mm-hmm. it?" Mm. Um, but it's also when he's in Hollywood um, that we get the famous line that is the reason that we think of him as Fred Astaire. Hmm, can't sing, can't dance, can handle a sword a little. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a reference to Fred Astaire. And where, now, what is the story behind that quote? Because I, I sort of know that it refers to Fred Astaire, but I don't really know the story behind it. They said, I, I can't remember the full quote, but it's can dance a little, which is hilarious because Fred Astaire is like yeah. the ridiculous dance guy. Like he was, what, 40 and he could he did a lot of those in one take, like 20 minutes of just nonstop tap dancing that was professional grade. And like, oh, I can dance a little. Yeah, because his quote was "Can't act, can't sing. Yeah, can dance a little. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The screen test was. No, no. I think you're you're totally totally on it with that one. I mean, yeah, like Fred Astaire, probably the greatest dancer (laughs) ever to be filmed. Um, Although you know, there's the even greater quote. I don't know if you know about Ginger Rogers. No, where (laughs) I think it's said by Ginger Rogers. She said a lot of people say Fred was the greatest dancer of all time, but I did everything that he did and I did it backwards and in heels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is, yeah, a fair point. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I can't even walk in heels, so I can't yeah. imagine it. But um, or I, I was just going to say, if anybody's in front of a laptop and they want to check out Fred Astaire's dancing, I would strongly suggest jump on YouTube and type in Royal Wedding Fred Astaire mm. and you will see this incredible um, Inception-like... Is it the... Yeah, 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 yeah. So oh, you with know the, how the room that like rotates. Yeah, but it actually is rotating and yeah. he's dancing. Yeah. Like, Sorry, it's just like I got too excited about it, yeah. but it was... It was quite revolutionary, wasn't it? Because they fixed mm. the camera mm. and it just looks amazing. And he yeah. manages to choreograph it to a moving mm-hmm. room. And mm-hmm. it's just... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, All right. It's incredible. We'll, we'll yeah. put a link to that in the yeah. show notes, I think, because <laughs> yeah. people are going to want to see it. She probably wouldn't be allowed now. Like They'd have to get a stunt dancer oh, yeah. <laughs> to do it. Yeah. <laughs> 
now we also meet a few other important characters at this early stage of the book. Uh, we've we've met Victor. Um, he he's meeting up with Silverfish, the producer um, and director. But we also meet briefly um, Gaspode, the Wonder Dog, who does not get named but appears quite early on and, and speaks. Um, we also, I mean, there's a couple of other minor characters like there's the he's the handleman, as they call the cameraman, mm. because they have to turn the handle on the on the boxes. Oh, and can we just quickly talk about how those work? Because oh, that yeah. was yeah. just so amazing. Yeah. Like the idea that the hand, there's imps inside the box that are quickly painting everything they see onto the octocellulose and there's six of them two to paint four to blow it dry yeah yeah so that it doesn't get smudged <laughs> and the handle like why is the handle going around because it's got whips on it or strings mm. to like whip them into doing it make them do it faster yeah it makes the clicking sound i assume the whips right yeah yeah, and yeah i was like is this like a really a way to get in all the early hollywood animal cruelty like as much as possible because like how many animals die like, horses copped it possibly the worst yeah because they got so. maimed too yeah oh, it was doris day in the man who knew too much um that actually um she personally lobbied for the creation of animal standards in the production of films and the introduction of the you know at the end of the film credits no animal was harmed um in the making of this because in the man who knew too much the hitchcock film there's a scene in uh, marrakesh in morocco where there are some animals um sort of on display uh, and she was so horrified at the way that they were being treated but yeah so that film is 1956 um and so it wasn't until, you know, that's a lot of years of films being produced. <laughs> yeah, because horses, like, they trip them over with tripwires. Like, oh, we need horses to fall. We'll trip them over. Mm. Now they're trained to fall one of two ways. So, like, you've got a horse that's a left faller or a right faller, and neither of them are ambi-turners. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, so that's much more humane. Mm. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I won't go on to a huge thing about horses in film, but there was I was just reading before about how and one of them deliberately killed two by, like, putting blinkers over them and painting horse eyes onto it and then just running them over a cliff. Wow. Oh, that's awful. For the stunt. But yeah. Yeah. On purpose. And they are very, wow. yeah. Well, they, I mean, look, the the imps don't seem to mind. We, we've already been introduced to this idea that that's the equivalent of a camera in the disc mm. world. In, mm. Even in, in The Colour of Magic, the very first one, Two Flower, the disc's first tourist, has a, a picture box and it's a little imp that paints a picture of what he points it at when he presses the button it opens the shutter so the imp can see and paints mm. a picture and now they're using them for motion pictures but they also they refer to them as demons they're like tiny demons mm. and it's never very clear where they get the demons from <laughs> are they dangerous <laughs> like what's happening there yeah well they've, um, got, they've got union rights though haven't they like they've right. got a, yeah yeah, been that's, mucked that's out like, and fed. Oh yeah, they yeah. get they get. There's a line later on the book where the actors complain that they treat their imps and even the trolls much better than they treat the people, <laughs> which is a bit rough. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I I kind of wonder as well whether some of the discussion of of that mm. in the book is the reference to. I mean, you know, like the Hitchcock quote of like treat your actors like cattle. Um, which yeah. he, he said and then apparently regretted saying. Um, <laughs> oh, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, also the the fact that Hollywood uh, in the golden age but before was, you know, heavily unionized to the point where like, especially if you were making a film sort of in the 30s, if you turned up and if you were the director of a film and you looked into the lens of the camera, like you could be reported to the union for doing, you know, the cameraman's job and taking his labor away from him. Wow. Huh. Um, um, and, you know, it was a he at that point. But, um, you know, just really incredibly strict um, up until really the 60s and 70s. 
I really like the thing about Handelman being handled, handed, handled, handed down um, all the knowledge, except it had only been going for about three weeks. So it was handed sideways to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Else. That's great. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. And this is also like quite early on, this is where Dibbler shows up. He's had the idea inserted into his head in the way that so many other people have. But when he turns up, he sees this cue. He's like, I'm not having with this. Much the same way that Victor does. We didn't mention this, but he sort of sees the cue as well. Uh, and just decides to sort of go around the back of the thing and climb over the fence. Yeah, yeah he's got one of those stories like he read in the magazines where they yeah. do like the plucky thing and they just get the job. Right. Yeah. And so everyone tries it and doesn't. But yes, he gets mm. in, gets the job, and Dibbler does a similar thing. Yeah, and it's so, it's really like I, it's it's significant to the plot that it's so out of character for him to want to do this as well because mm. it's so at odds with the sort of lazy person that we've already been. But he's quite capable. He's quite a you know sort of a, a competent protagonist. Mm. But then, yeah, Dibbler turns up and he's hired Detritus the Troll who's sort of hanging around waiting to get his break in moving, moving pictures <laughs> to be his, you know, bodyguard and just smash his way in and decide that, you know, he basically takes over. And it's just <laughs> like he, the struggle between Silverfish the Alchemist who starts up what later becomes known as um, Century of the Fruit Bat moving <laughs> pictures <Yeah. laughs> um, and Dibbler who comes in as sort of this guy who says, I'm going to help you make money and then slowly just t- interferes more and more and takes over. Like that. that's like that classic story that we hear even today about producer interference with directors, mm. visions for films that mm. happens all the time. Mm. Was that a big feature of this early era of, of cinema? I mean, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, to the point where um, United Artists was formed by uh, Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, um, who uh, also, you know, were the co-founders of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the, wow. the, the Academy. They did that because because they felt that they didn't have creative control over their products uh, and they were successful only for a very short period of time. And that's kind of repeated throughout Hollywood history where, you know, like Frank Capra also tries to get creative independence after the Second World War uh, and makes It's a Wonderful Life, which bankrupts, you know, him and, and has gone on to become an incredible classic today, but did terribly at the time. And there's this brief period in the 1960s, which people talk about called New Hollywood, which is seen to be the moment where finally directors and artists had this creative freedom, but really it's an aberration. People say George Lucas and Steven Spielberg ruined it with Star Wars and Jaws in the 70s and then returned to money making. But, you know, it's sort of a quirk of history. The only reason why directors suddenly had creative freedom in in that new hollywood 60s era is because um the big studios were forced to sell off the production company aspects my favorite anecdote of this is that um at one point in the 60s warner brothers was owned by a company that previously had made their fortune um uh selling car parking spots (laughs) and um cleaning products like vacuum cleaning household stuff. Wow. And so, you know, the executives had no idea how to make movies, these new executives. So they're just sort of like, oh, yeah, like you've been to film school or, you know, you've, you're have you a 23-year-old guy who's sort of been hanging around these cameras for a while. Sure, go go make a movie. And, you know, so that's why we get like Easy Rider and The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and those sorts of things. But it's really a quirk of Hollywood history. Otherwise, it's just like throughout consistent clash between creatives and, and money makers. Yeah. And I mean, here we have this sort of not just the impetus to make money from Dibbler, but also he's he's got a significant part of the Hollywood idea in his head, which is we have to make the perfect like cinema 
experience. Yeah. And that includes making this crazy blockbuster. And that mm. this whole sort of middle section of the of the book is that build up of where they're making more and more outlandish films and more and more epic kind yep. of tales. Where and which kind of starts when Victor shows up, really, because mm. they'd not seen anything like that before. And and the first film that he makes, where he and Ginger are in it, and he's like you know swashbuckling away, but he has that sort of fugue where he just. It's like he's a little whisper in his head and then he wakes up and he goes, what happened? And it's like, well, you know, you fought the trolls and you saved the girl and you did this massive, you know, had an amazing kiss and a swoon and everybody's like, this is incredible. Mm. And nobody's quite sure how it happens. <laughs> um, and then the film doesn't get called, you know, The Curious and Interesting Adventures <laughs> of Cohen the Barbarian. Yeah. But instead <laughs> um, is called like Sword of Passion. Yeah. Oh, I've forgotten about Cohen the Barbarian. That's another obviously great reference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. He's, he never showed... I kept wondering if he would show up to like mm. complain about all these moving pictures made about him, but no. Yeah. Especially yeah. since so much of his income is merch. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you would think it would help him sell a whole bunch more manuals to, yeah. to people like, um, like Nigel. <laughs> so that's one sort of aspect of what's going on in the middle of that film. And there's more and more references to, to films in there as these things come up. But then there's mm. also... There's a couple of other plot threads going on, one of which is that Victor meets Gaspode and realises he's a talking dog, mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> who tells his story that he was just a normal dog and then suddenly he started thinking like a human being and seeing colours mm-hmm. and knowing that he had to go to Hollywood. And then they meet a whole bunch of other talking animals as <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> which I quite enjoyed. I'd forgotten that happened in this mm-hmm. book. Mr. Thumpy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and he gets really angry about like the names that they should have. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all so. And Victor's like, oh, I'm, I'm, what, does he, what does he suggest for the mouse? He's like, oh, yeah. The mouse says he likes the name like Mr. Speedy or whatever or Speed yeah. Hunter. And he's like, oh, no. Mice usually have cute names like Squeak and the animals get real cold and real mean. Yeah. Right. He's it. referred to as like definitely not Mr. Squeak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. After that. Yeah. I love the kind of insinuated resentment that the animals have, or at least kind of like mild inconvenience of sort of being, you know, like, well, like we lived very normal lives and we didn't, we didn't have to think about people's names and we didn't have to think about knowing things, you know, like yeah, or the feelings of someone we were trying to eat. Yeah. You know? yeah. Oh yeah. Cause the cat can only eat fish now because it doesn't sort of say things. Yeah. Mm. They don't talk back. Yeah. And it's, I, I found that really interesting cause it was like, well, cause, cause when did, when did animated films sort of become a big deal? Mm. Cause the first Disney film, Snow White, was Snow White, that was like 1930s. Is that right? Yeah, but Disney had been producing um, shorts up until then. The reason why Disney is important, I mean, there'd been animated films since the very early 1910s, like the first decade. I, what do you call it? 1900s, I suppose, like 1905, 1906. The noughties. The noughties. The other ones. Yeah, the other ones. The non-noughties, yeah. Uh, I mean, my... Favorite one is um, one from I think it's around 1912 called Gertie the Dinosaur, which is oh, one yeah. of the first animal ones. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. Yeah. yeah, McKay, I think is the director's name. Sorry, um, did you say McKay? Like, is it? Has it? Have they passed all the way down to McGee? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is, I'm sure that's where he got his name from, yeah. But Disney is important because he, uh, his big thing was the anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Yes, that word. Thank you very much. You know, I think it perfectly plays into um, moving pictures, use of animals, talking, you know, and having human characteristics. So like, we we didn't ask for these things, you know, and that's sort of, you know, what happened after a couple of decades in, in animated films. One of the things I got the feeling with from that part of the book is that the Hollywood idea has so many facets to it and it's going to find one or another way to get a film that is just right for its purposes. Mm. And one of those ways could be, you know, your funny animal films, but 
they don't end up making any. <laughs> and, you know, they can't really using Discworld technology because you can't make the imps paint something that's not there. <laughs> so they can only make live action films. Yeah. But colour is no problem for them because yeah. the imps know how to paint in colour. Mm. Um, but they can't do mm. synchronised sound. It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's right. They try the parrots, and they, but they keep picking up what the handlemen are saying. Mm. Like, show us your knickers. Oh, yeah. Or just <laughs> some, of the, some of the junior staff are teaching them swear words and things. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it's interesting because there was colour film right from the start. Really? Well, in the sense that the same process was achieved in that they would hand paint film. Oh, so yeah. a lot of the early um, uh, Georges Méliès films, for example, uh, were beautiful coloured films because they were hand-painted by he and his wife and collaborators. Wow. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, totally there, totally possible. I mean, the Lumières were experimenting with colour processes very, very early on, but, you know, Technicolor didn't really take hold until the 30s. It was just difficult. Same with sound, you know. People have been recording sound um, and, and distributing, like, phonographs, mm. you know, the little beautiful little um, cylinders. Yeah, wax we... cylinders, like, from the turn of the century. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, people had the ability to record sound. It was just the, the trick of synchronising it. People sort of saw sound as a, um, a bit more uncouth, a bit more um, vaudevillian, I suppose, um, because you'd often have um, sound people standing behind screens, you know, with starters, rifles and stuff like that for, for sound effects. Um, but that was seen as a bit a bit tacky to some degree. So maybe there was a bit more cultural reasons for sound than, than colour. It's like because like, the talkies killed vaudeville in the end Yeah, as well. Like I remember reading about a magician in Australia who was surfing the golden age of magic and they used to tour around the regional towns but when talkies came in people didn't come out to see vaudeville anymore because they had something else to entertain them mm. you know so that's that's one of the extra strands we've got this sort of weird talking animals thing happening but then also there's the strand where victor slowly starts to discover a little bit about the history of hollywood and, and what's happening because he finds quite early on um the book that describes what's supposed to be happening because he goes down to the beach and he finds the body of Deccan mm. and his little hut and in the hut is his book, which is called the book of the film, <laughs> yeah. um, which is the first time they mention film. Cause they, towards the end of the book, they start referring to things being about film, mm. but I don't think they ever refer to moving pictures as films up until that point. My favorite word to describe film in this book is, is kinema, which is, oh, which yeah. is the original word. I mean, cause it's, it's German means like moving um, you know, movement, right? right. So, um, you know, it, it was anglicized to cinema. So it's interesting to see in here, it's sort of been returned with a, with a K, kinema. I was very happy to see that as a complete cinema history nerd. Oh, and, then, <laughs> and then the cinema. Like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the cinema. Yeah, cinema. yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the book of the film is a bit of a mystery to Victor mm. when he finds it. He sort of flicks through it. It's got these little weird little pictures, but there's one figure that keeps reoccurring in it. Uh, holding a big sword, yeah, bold, um, but quite strong and muscular mm. um, and tall. Looks a bit like Uncle Osric or yeah. Osbert yeah. or Oswald. <laughs> Everyone thinks it looks like their uncle, uh, which is a bit weird. It's quite clearly communicates to us without ever having to spell it out who that's supposed to or yeah. what that's supposed to look like. Yeah, Fred Astaire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always thought he looked like my uncle. Um, <laughs> and it's spelt out on the, the cover of, of my version of the book. Lovely photo of it, which looks exactly like an Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's a very good cover in that it sums up a lot of the, the book very succinctly. I particularly mm. like the way it's got the tentacles on one side and then mm. the, the film strips coming out in, in the same shape as tentacles on the other side. I thought that mm. was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, we probably should talk about the cover of the book. because now oh, it's so titsy. We're at yeah. the part. And, and we've talked about this art that it's Josh Kirby's <clears throat> art style. Mm. Um, but it's particularly like they do mention that she doesn't always wear very much ginger when she's in the, the films. But I think he really took that and ran really with it. Did, yeah. See, I th- I spent a lot of the time, every time I put the book down between reads, I was like, so titsy would just go through my head. But when we got to the bit about the posters and how they talked about how she's got more than several women have, I was like, maybe this is like a poster. Like it's supposed to be a poster for, a f- I know it's not quite, but it's, yeah, it's got, you know, the other characters shooting the film and but this is like mm. a poster for moving pictures oh yeah true so um so she's like done up in like the ridiculous way and like obviously mine's it's the same thing where i have a slightly newer one than than the older one i have a newer one than the older one so the josh kirby art has been edited so i've got the one that has less detail and Mm. things have been moved like it's a mirror image of the one ben has and it has less it doesn't have the cameraman on it oh Mm. true yeah and also on the back you can see Laddie, but not Gaspard. Well, the weird thing is, on my edition, there is a dog on Ginger's leg on mm. the front cover. Mm. And I was like, well, I guess that's Gaspard. Mm. But then on the back cover, there's two dogs running together, which is clearly meant to be Laddie and Gaspard. So I'm like, who is this? <laughs> and it's and it's all one image. Like, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll link to an image of it. And there's some, in- there's some weird stuff in there. I mean, we've got, we've got the, the golden man as we call him later on in the book um the oscar style character i don't know the, who this we is because mine is severely lacking well in him. mine on mine isn't <laughs> there, but he's, he's right on the edge of the spine yeah. as well so you can't really see him too well um and on the back cover not only is there laddie and, and gaspode but there's the wizards in uh, windle poons's chair like mm. chasing in so it's yeah but it is it is the most i think out of all of the covers yeah. it's the most like boobtacular <laughs> i can use that as a word um cover Oh, and I them. just got that that's the chariot race. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like the chariot that race. Completely went by me. Anyway, so there's a lot of stuff Ooh. going on. And yeah. His covers are always very busy. He liked to read the book and then put as many of the ideas that he liked from the book on the cover as he mm. could, mm-hmm. um, often with little references to things that would happen later on. Yeah. So there's, if you look too closely at a Josh Kirby cover, you're, you're <laughs> going to find some spoilers. Wow. But it's just how many movies is this one thing? Because, like, I immediately go for it some Star Wars. Like, yeah. Jabba the Hutt. The pose is a bit Star Wars, isn't it? And yeah. the sword is not yeah. up, though. It's it's across. It's not far removed, though. It's pretty, pretty dang close. Yeah. And the outfit is very close. Yeah. yeah. Well, I um, I actually had the choice, weirdly enough. I've, I managed to pick up a copy in the Dandenongs in Victoria in a little country town bookstore, which didn't have many books, but it happened to have not one, but two copies of this book. And so I was able to choose between this, this cover, the hardback, more recent one, or the original. And I remember looking at the original cover and just being like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, just because of the, the boobtacular nature, as you put it. It's uh, just, yeah. yeah it's, it's like if you get busted reading it on the tram, you feel like you've got to put brown paper 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's but, a little bit like that, yeah. But I did have a conversation with uh, the woman who was running the store, I think it's possibly the, the, the owner or manager of the store, about this very podcast. So shout out to her if she manages to track it down and listen oh, to this. She was hmm. a big Pratchett fan, so who knows? Oh, Maybe great. she will. Excellent. Mm. Well, if you're listening, um, hello yep. and welcome. <laughs> we hope you enjoy it. Yeah. Actually, one other thing that's worth mentioning, the original, original cover, which has the same illustration as my edition, has a different logo. And it actually has moving pictures written across the front in very much the Superman style block font. And that that font that's, I mean, I agree it's mostly Superman, but it's also a bit um, Ben-Hur or the original Hmm. Ben-Hur. Well, not the original because there's been about 16 adaptations of that, but the, the 50s. Epic, the famous one. And I've yeah. never spotted the watch. I looked every time. Like, you know, in the rowing scene, there's supposed oh, to be a guy yeah. wearing a watch. That gleams mm. off the sunlight, gleams off it in the background somewhere. Is that yeah. that's what happens? I like did the start-stop thing, like, as a child to be like, I'm seeing this watch that I read about in a book. And mm. you know where I first saw Ben-Hur, though? Mm. That three-hour epic film. Like, my school made us watch it for religion. Oh. Which is really? definitely phoning in. Like, what are we going to teach yeah. the kids? Oh, we've run out of religion to teach yeah. them. Let's just put on Ben-Hur for the next term. Because <laughs> yeah. you'd watch it in like 40-minute increments, mm. but like have to rewind a bit each time. <laughs> wow. It's from previously on Ben-Hur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's your equivalent of your five real film, isn't it? Like, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's a super long one. Oh, it's enormous. Well, I mean, mm. that's the saying, right? Yeah. Bigger than Ben-Hur. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, this is where Dibbler's heading with all of yeah. his film ideas. Oh, there's just so much happening in the middle of the book, but it's all kind of delightful mm. as everybody's on their sort of different trajectories and they're slowly figuring out what's going on. But the only mm. ones who are really trying to figure out what's going on really are Victor and Gaspard and eventually Ginger as well, but she's caught up in it in a different way. And also the bursar from a long way away. Oh, that's true because what happens in the university is there's a weird noise that annoys uh, Mushroom Ridkelly mm. and mm. they don't really know what it is. So they decide to find out. And it's this weird sort of urn contraption, which is has these little elephants hanging off it. Um, and it's spitting out these little clay pellets. Invented by Richter, who liked to count things, <laughs> which yes. is very good, Great. his Richter scale. But yeah. I found it really interesting because they find out um, that it measures reality. And if reality is going like haywire, then it will maybe spit it out like a little bit like dribble a ball out of an elephant's mouth and it's just shooting it off like a gun so that something's really going wrong. But I found it really interesting because there's a Chinese earthquake predictor that is actually an urn. Um, I remember it as being frogs with balls in their mouth that would drop down, um, which is a horrifying image now that I have said it like that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, so frogs around an urn, if there was... However, the things dropped basically told you how bad the tremors were and would mm. give you an idea that it was going to happen. We looked it up um, and it's apparently the original was dragons, but the principal... Well, the one that Pratchett was aware of, yeah, yeah. was from the Han Dynasty and it was, yeah, it was, it was little dragons and it, it measured an earthquake while it was happening and the idea was that they would drop out of the dragon's mouth in the direction that the earthquake was coming from so that you knew where the earthquake was happening. I'd never realised that until you mentioned it. You learn weird things in Chinese school. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, right. and strange poems. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone's plots are happening. Um, and are. Ginger's got some weird stuff going on. Well, she doesn't know that anything is happening initially, 
But then uh, one day Victor's walking out on the dunes with Laddie, the wonder dog, who gets brought in. We haven't mentioned Laddie yet, have we? No. But Gaspard never gets a job in moving pictures, but they do have the idea that, hey, wouldn't it be great to make a picture about a dog? Everyone loves dogs. <laughs> and so they bring in this trained like wonder dog named Laddie who cannot speak like the other animals that have been lured to Hollywood. Um, Laddie's just been brought in because they're super well trained and, and you know, very, very highly bred sort of beautiful border collie mm. style, lassie style yeah. dog. The first film that Victor and Ginger did together has gone surprisingly well, despite the fact that they've been fired and told they'll never work again in this yeah. industry because they dared to have lunch. So <laughs> she's gone to go work in the, in the terrible Hollywood canteen Commissary. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And he's sort of taken on a job holding horses, which is also an act. Um, so they're both doing quite badly, but they sort of find each other. And then they're on the dunes, like Ben described. And that's when Dibbler, who's been hunting for them everywhere after seeing this film's gone well because of their chemistry, mm. finds them and says, okay, well, I'll let you, I'm being generous, I'll let you work again for a dollar and then just a voice from their knees goes $15 and Mm. that's when Gaspard becomes an agent instead of a star yeah and I quite like that it's it's the event it's the blockbuster yeah sort of passion becomes this like because we have that scene in Agmorepork with the Odium yeah such a great pun name yeah uh, or the Odium and and he's opens the door and he's like they're around the block like, there's all people lined up down the street to see the film yeah I love the the play on the cinema names and again as a cinema worker I loved it yeah great because yeah. <laughs> people get it wrong a lot of the time but he got it right how it is to work in a cinema yeah so yep. you don't just sit there watching the films no you've got stuff to do <laughs> you got to make banged grains yeah. all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make sure the film's running okay. Yeah. One of the people who goes to see the film is the librarian mm. who sees, uh, I forget if it's, he definitely sees Sword of Passion, but I think it might be a slightly later film where he sees something in the background because there are ruins in Hollywood and mm. some of them appear in the background of one of the films and he thinks he recognises some of the pictures and he's become obsessed with the films like so many people in Ankh-Morpork and the librarian, in case anyone's joining this is, is their first episode, is not a, a human being but an, an orangutan who works as the librarian in the magical library of Unseen University. Mm. Um, and so he thinks he recognises these symbols. He thinks he's seen them somewhere before. But it's just, I really enjoyed his like love affair with the cinema <laughs> and how he's come up with his own story for a film. Oh my God. And it's in a footnote, it's just so good. The librarian loved the clicks. They spoke to something in his soul. He'd even started writing a story, which he thought would make a very good moving picture. And then the footnote is, it was about a young ape who was abandoned in the big city and grows up being able to speak the language of humans. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's one of a few of these things where they invert the yeah. story. And it's just one of those weird things where you're, you're born at the time that the spoof is more popular than the thing that it's spoofing. Mm. So for me, I'm like, my first instinct is, oh, it's George of the Jungle. (laughs) (laughs) But it's Tarzan. Yeah. 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 Um, Not the the only Tarzan reference in the book. Mm. There's another great one towards the end. Mm. Yeah, so there's there's all that going on. The librarian's starting to look into it. Victor's starting to look into things. There was a a reference, actually. You mentioned Gaspode sort of negotiating. There's a... you know, and he coaches him later on to say, okay, hmm. when you're talking to Dibbler later, right, you've got us, what's the phrase? And he goes, oh, and the percentage of the gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking about this because famously, the only story I know about that is that famously Alec Guinness was the only one of the actors in the original Star Wars mm. to negotiate a percentage of the gross. Mm. But when did that become a thing? Is that Was that an early thing that big film stars got that sort of 
um, cut of the profits. I thought it was like a weird thing that Alec Guinness got that because he was mm. famous and they didn't expect to make any money. And so he just sort of said, okay, well, this. So I don't know if that's like become a normal thing since then because I thought it was just like a weird Alec Guinness Star Wars thing. Yeah. But- uh, bigger name actors did have percentages of, of the, the gross that would trade points occasionally. Um the reason why it's unusual in Star Wars' case is because, yeah, exactly, nobody expected it to make any money. Yeah. So it was, you know, Alec Guinness um, did Star Wars because George Lucas had a reputation as like a, an art film director, which he was essentially up until Star Wars um, to a large extent. And so he sort of thought he was doing him a, a favour. Um, yeah, because he famously hated it. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I don't know. I think I think the hate is overstated. I think he's right. more like bemused by it and didn't really get it and thought the dialogue was not very good, which it isn't. Mm. Um, as a lifelong Star Wars fan, it's not. I mean, the famous story with Star Wars with point trading is that Lucas and Spielberg went on holiday um, to mm. Hawaii um, before Star Wars opened. And it was just, I think, after Spielberg had finished making Close Encounters because they were released in the same year and they sort of bet against each other that... You know, Spielberg said Star Wars is going to make more money and Lucas is like, no, Close Encounters is going to make more money. And they're like, the winner wins a percentage of the higher grossing film. So Spielberg, I think, still has 1% of the original Star Wars, which he could probably, like, if he didn't make a single other film for the rest of his life, he could retire on that. So No wonder he can just make whatever film he wants. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And put E.T. into the Star Wars universe. Yeah. yeah. That was like a, a quid pro quo arrangement, wasn't it? Because Yoda and E.T.? Exactly. Yeah. I think I learned that on The Art of the Score. Oh, actually. really? Yeah, well, <laughs> <I suspect. laughs> more than just film music. But yeah, so it's it's all happening. Because they've got stars in their eyes. Quite literally, at one point, as Victor looks into Ginger's eyes and sees there's like stars in there and it's, mm. it's quite pretty, but a bit off-putting. That's not normal. Um, mm. Meanwhile, the librarian goes into the forbidden sort of super secret section of the library and looks up a particular book, the... Necrotelecomnicon, <laughs> uh, which has been mentioned in other books by Pratchett before. In fact, I'm pretty sure it makes an appearance in Good Omens as well and one of the earlier Discworld books. And this is like, you know, this is where the Cthulhu-style elements really start to creep in. In fact, I wrote, I wrote a note when I was reading the book. It's like, oh, the librarian's in a Call of Cthulhu campaign, <laughs> um, which for any listeners who are not role players, there's several really big famous role-playing games, one of which, of course, is Dungeons & Dragons. But one of the other sort of pillars that has lasted as long is The Call of Cthulhu, which is a, a, a role-playing game based on the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. You know, there's sort of a whole idea of cosmic horror where these things come from so far outside of our own experience that even just to glimpse them will send you mad. <laughs> um, and, that, and that's really, that's where so much of this book comes from that idea uh, and the librarians looking in the book trying to figure it out and the necrotelecomnicon is written by Ahmed the I just get these headaches <laughs> um, what was his other book as well Ahmed the I just get these headaches is book of humorous cat stories <laughs> um, which is a reference of course to um, Al Hazred who's the supposed author of the necronomicon in the um, HP Lovecraft universe um, which I I can't think of it now without thinking of Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. Their latest album is called The Dukes of Alhazred. <laughs> and it's got this cover of like, you know, General Lee style car yeah. with like a mad guy look with his crazy <laughs> eyes and a scraggly beard and wearing these old robes. Yeah. Very silly. Um yeah, so he's trying to he's trying to figure that out. And when he's reading the book and he's sort of learning that there was a city, they found something, they interacted with that thing, and it all went 
wrong for them. It like destroyed the city, but they somehow managed to do something that would stop it from happening again. And it, it actually gets quite explicit in the book. Like it, it pretty much tells you what the ending of the novel's going to be, which <laughs> yeah. I, I was a bit surprised by. Mm. But there's a bit in there where it says, uh, this you cannot do for it is not a thing. <laughs> and I was like, it's not a thing. Uh, right, like, is this yeah. the first appearance of it's not a thing in print? Because that's pretty early on. I, I thought of it as much something much more recent. Yeah. The other thing that's happening around here is that somebody's ordered something very outlandish as they're trying to make the ultimate blockbuster, mm. as Dibbler adds more and more ideas and comes up with more and more ridiculous things he could possibly do with moving pictures, he decides to buy or rent, it's never really made entirely clear, um, 1,000 elephants. Yes. And that becomes a little recurring kind of subplot in the book of these these dudes out in the you know plains where the elephants live on the disc world. Trying to gather up a thousand of them and bring them all to Ankh-Morpork because it's like no one ever wants to buy a thousand elephants. This is intense. And there's that one guy who's like, this is what I was born to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, I really yeah. like how the guy comes, like, the the guy comes out to his assistant and he's like, oh, how many elephants do we have? As though he like thinks maybe they've got a thousand yeah, just yeah, hanging yeah. around. So I don't know, three, four, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and then his assistant's the one who's got the call of destiny and they march over yetis and and a guy the mousetrap thing like the guy who just invented the perfect mousetrap yeah, and because mm. the phrase is like you know invent a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it turns out that elephants do just that and it's like standing in the rubble going i didn't know it was that good mm. <laughs> and the elephants are on their way um mm. but then dibbler gets his big idea like he hits him in the night so badly that he starts running on his bed and it was for this brother fighting brother civil war mm. epic a woman sort of left alone in her like a state and she's got two young men one's gone off to the war and the other one throws her over but it's going to be okay what are we going to call it blown away yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and he, i love that he has that he's that conference with the other people making the film where he's just like, trying to explain the plot yeah it just goes on and on and on yeah and like, what this doesn't what uh, and there's a whole section that explains what happened in the Ankh-Morpork Civil War. Mm. And then he just keeps trying to add in more and more blockbuster stuff. You know, he's like, we're going to have a chariot race. We want the thousand elephants. And then he starts going, oh, yeah, maybe we can get a really big shark in there. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone looking at him, he's like, okay, maybe not the shark. Uh, but, <laughs> but at least the fonts can jump over it, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they, and they have the big argument because, of course, they've got to cast Victor and Ginger. But then they need a second male lead. And this is where, I mean, we haven't mentioned them, but there's also some great supporting characters in Hollywood, including a bunch of trolls. Yes. And uh, they're originally called Mori and what's it? Galena. And Galena. Mm. But they decide to change their names to something more appropriate for moving <laughs> pictures. And so one of them just starts calling himself Rock. Yeah. As in Rock Hudson, obviously, yeah. is yeah, the yeah, reference. Yeah. And, and he even considers getting plastic surgery to look more troll-like or yeah. less troll-like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, if my friend got some concrete put on his nose and he's really getting all the good <laughs> troll roles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they play all the monsters as well. It's like, mm. and there's repeated references to, oh, I'm making a moving picture in which, you know, I'm fighting whatever Mori is dressed up as this week. <laughs> yeah. And so they're going to cast him, Rock, as the second lead. And Ginger's like, you can't cast a troll. Like, that's ridiculous. Um, and it becomes very much, a, you know, a stand-in for issues of, representation in film and again mm. remembering this book was published in 1990 mm. like that's nearly 30 years ago this is this is quite ahead of its time in that discussion in some ways and depressingly still pertinent yeah 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, even in a not directly relating to current discussions of representation way, um, it's similar to a film called Marty with Ernest Borgnine as the lead. Um, and that was really the film that kind of made him a really big star up until then. He was, you know, the supporting character, the, the drunk, the angry uncle or whatever, or the comic relief. Um, uh, and, um, but it was like considered to be like a huge moment in Hollywood because it was a romantic love story. Uh, and, but the lead was this guy, Ernest Borgnine, who's not conventionally attractive um certainly not uh, for that era uh but people loved it i mean it won the academy award for best picture that year uh and you know again i think it's playing with that similar like you can't because i mean he like ernest borgnine if they were going to make it without being rude to him i'm sure he would have embraced this if they were going to make a movie about trolls he would have i think happily played a troll like i mean yeah. he, you know he had that kind of look that he's very brick like rock like mm. in appearance um so I think that's kind of interesting too. But I, I mean, I, I, before we move on, I do have to say that I think, I mean, the Gone with the Wind extended parody is, is certainly one of probably the two biggest references in, in the book. Yeah. Um, and I did enjoy that quite a lot, especially like the references to slapping, and, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, yeah, and the Civil War is interesting. Although, I don't know, I, 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 there was one thing that gave me pause in this book was the description of the Civil War, which, of course, is the stand-in for the American Civil War and Gone mm. with the Wind, which is told from a Confederate perspective, which is um, a point of controversy even today. But in this book, the Ankh-Morpork Civil War mm -hmm. is described as sort of taxes versus... There's two explanations for why it happened. Nobody really knows, but one is uh, taxes and the other is um, like just a dispute over... Oh, it's like a card game where someone cheats oh, yeah. yeah. out of hand. Yeah, 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 cripple yeah. the onion or something. Or... Yeah. yeah, it's a game of cripple Mr. Onion, the yeah. um, right. often referred to <laughs> card game on the Discord where the rules are never fully revealed, but yeah. they intended to be very complicated. So it might have been that or... One of the players in the game of Cripple Mr. Onion in a tavern had accused another of palming more than the usual number of aces, <laughs> and knives had been drawn, and then someone had hit someone with a bench, and then someone else had stabbed someone, and arrows started to fly, and someone had swung on the chandelier, and a carelessly hurled axe had hit someone in the street, and then the watch had been called in, and someone had set fire to the place, and someone had hit a lot of people with a table, and then everyone lost their tempers and commenced to start <laughs> fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, is obviously hilarious and works well for Discworld, mm. but... um. I mean, it, to me, it just slightly uncomfortably plays into, you know, the present day discussion about, well, why did the American Civil War happen? There's two explanations. Uh, yeah. One is taxes, which is like this. Oh. Or the other is, well, one side wanted to use slaves. And that's sort of the accepted explanation, obviously. And mm. so I just felt like it was kind of a like comical mm. reworking of actually a real historical and very, very serious um, rewriting of, 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 of our history as well. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, 
yeah, we have those issues about representation of not just the trolls, but also the dwarves who start going, yeah, and how come we always got to play miners? Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, you are miners, you're dwarves. And they're like, yeah, but we could do other things. Yeah. yeah. Plus, Ankh-Morpork wouldn't have a mine that close to it. We would just build on loam and our families will laugh at us if they see us mining Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> like such a good, just there's so many little callbacks in this book to other stuff that's been yeah. mentioned in recent books. And up until this point, I don't think there's been a lot of stuff in the Discworld books that really sort of is a reward for readers who've read most of them. There's a few little things here and there, but this book I think is where it starts to come in, where there's these little gags that are perfectly fine on their own, but if you've read some of the other Mm. books, it's like, oh, I know that. (laughs) Um, Alongside Mm. all of the film references as well. So it's a very reference-heavy book, but I think still probably mostly comprehensible if you don't know what the references are. I did like as well with the the dwarves, the um, singing of the songs that they spontaneously... Oh, the hi-ho song. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Nice Uh. little touch. Yeah, and they start singing a rude version yeah, because yeah. that's their silent protest. <laughs> While everyone's getting carried away with Blown Away, um, Gaspard has spotted something strange going on the night before, which is that Ginger has been sneaking away to the dunes and digging. Mm. And he tries to tell Victor, but Victor's too caught up in all the Hollywood magic to hear about it. Mm. She's been going out there in her sleep trying to get a door into an old structure that has survived from the original Hollywood city. Mm. Um, and it's creepy as <laughs> yeah. I really like the descriptions of it. It's very, <laughs> you know, um, and it's, a, it's quite Indiana Jones as well. Yeah. Like when they finally go inside, but he's scared of the dark. And but it's like that. Gaspard mocks him about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gaspard makes all these great references to like, oh, your girlfriend's been like possessed by a horrible something from, you know, this bodes, this does it bodes. <laughs> he's always talking about how it bodes. Uh, which I thought was hilarious. Not least because I have a friend who owns a dog who bears a passing resemblance to um, Gaspode, who's Great. called Bodie. <laughs> so Great. I I <laughs> uh, not for any reason like that. Um, and they, uh, while they're arguing on the set of the film, uh, is when Victor's starting to work it out because, you know, he's, he's trained a student wizard. He knows about all this stuff. And uh, I really enjoyed when he starts trying to explain about the idea of the genius loci, like the, the god of the place. But he, he talks about how Hollywood is different to other places. There's a great quote that I, I wrote down, which I just want to read out. Everywhere else, the most important things are gods or money or cattle. But here, the most important thing is to be important. <laughs> and there's this idea that part of the Hollywood thing is fame and celebrity, which mm. until that point had not really existed in the same way. Mm. And it got me thinking about whether that's something that happened with Round World. Is that is that I mean is that a fair thing to talk about with the sort of rise of stars and celebrities? Ginger talks about wanting to be bigger than herself, like she was a milkmaid or something like that, and she just wanted to be more. And there are all those Hollywood stories of Marilyn Monroe or Norma Jean at the time. She was like married off at sixteen or something, and she was just kind of the the cute trophy ish wife of a sailor on a boat. Mm. And that's when she started to realize that people were interested in her, and then slowly, like she's yeah, she just boomed in fame, and it was kind of like those stories of like rags to riches but not quite Mm. Mm. yeah definitely i think media changed the the nature of fame dramatically Uh, apart from anything um you know like it's the thread that really runs through the whole book which is reality um you know being able to capture somebody's likeness to the degree when you can recognize them yeah um, without ever having met them you know which is a different kettle of fish to simply having a very accurate painting Film theorists talk about an index, like indexicality, like a marker of sort of presence that somebody has actually stood in front of the camera. And this is why it's interesting that the demons 
sketch the the paintings as 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 I think you said before, Liz. Like it's not reality in the same way, and that's really interesting because the thing about film and about photography is is its relationship to you know, this idea that somebody has at some point stood in front of the lens, there's been a chemical reaction and has created a, an indexical likeness of them and then we see them and we sort of feel like we're seeing them in a similar manner as if we were actually standing in front of them um, and creates that sense of realism or reality. And and so that kind of thing um, changed the nature of of celebrity and 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 um, fame, um, but it's also interesting with the leaking of reality in this book as well. I think it's all tied up really quite interestingly. Mm. And I'd argue that because um they talk about how they don't well they don't really realize that they're celebrities until they go to the screening and there's that interesting comparison that they make that the patrician's there and he works really hard and he does all this important stuff but people don't recognize him they recognize the two film stars that are mm. with him mm. and they have a line in there about how. Even the best thespian would not be as famous because mm. it's, it's that yeah. familiarity you're talking about. Yeah. And I'd argue that now, because um, we had cinema create a new breed of celebrity, now it's kind of morphed with the internet and Twitter, mm. which celebrities are progressively obliged to have. Mm. There's another level of intimacy, again, that we feel like we know people and yet it's another role they're mm. playing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I mean that's a, that recurring theme throughout the book as well. They they sort of express it as the difference between what's genuine and what's real, mm. um, which comes about when they're making Blown Away and they decide they're going to make a model of Ank Morpork and it's going to look more real than the real thing. Mm. And it does when they make it, even though it's all made out of sackcloth and bits of wood and mm. painted on. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought that was that was really interesting. Um, and I think, you know, that, that moment where Dibbler realizes that he's not as famous as you were saying is, is really like, it reinforces who his character is set up to parody, especially with Gone with the Wind, mm. in that I think reasonably explicitly he's supposed to be a parody of the archetype, the, the most, well known of these is David O'Selznick, who was the producer of Gone with the Wind and the, the most sort of famous, creative control producer in all of Hollywood um, to the degree. And, and you know, self-aggrandizing, you know, uh, I mean, in Gone with the Wind, they burned down the actual house, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, for yeah. the film. Um, and, um, you know, to the degree where, like, um, Alfred Hitchcock, um, uh, Selznick brought Hitchcock to America uh, and they had a really fractious relationship because they're both control freaks, basically. But um, in North by Northwest... Cary Grant's character, um, he's got a middle name of O and the joke in that film is that it stands for nothing. And that's meant to be a pot shot at, at David O. Selznick and that, you know, this is zero, this O in his name is just a, just a blank self-aggrandizing signifier. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think, you know, that's very much what Dibbler is sort of like, he wants that fame. He wants that notoriety for himself, um, as much as for, for anything, you know, as much as profit too. Yeah. And while they're at this screening, back in Hollywood, everything's been covered with the fog, which they've just escaped. And Victor and Ginger are freaked out when they enter the building, not just because of the fame that they're experiencing they didn't know they have, but because of the parallels with what happened the night before, which is where they went in through the doors mm. and they found what we later find out is the thinema or the cathinema. Basically, it's a moldy version of a... Th- of a theater or a cinema filled with dead people staring at a screen. Yeah. And there's just this, this figure covered in dust that looks a bit like someone's uncle 
Oswald. That's where, you know, Victor finds Ginger standing behind the screen, holding up a torch. Um, and this very much sort of recalls the mm. dream that she recounts to him where she talks about, you know, okay, so there's this mountain and it's not really kind of a normal mountain. Paramount. Um, and then yeah. there's <laughs> then there's these stars that sort of fly around it and then, then one of them comes down and then there's all these lights shining in the sky and then there's a woman holding a torch yeah. and then there's like uh, this weird noise uh, of like an animal roaring. <laughs> and you're like, so it's all of the intros for all the major film studios. Yeah. But then all those bits of iconography are an important part of the ritual and the magic that has been holding Hollywood back in mm. one way or another, although we don't quite find that out yet in the film. And they think that she's going in there trying to wake up this guy on the slab and that that's going to destroy everything. Mm. Um, and yet, as you say, when they go to the the big screening of um, Blown Away in uh, Ankh Morpork in the Odium, which has been completely done up and is starting to look a lot like the cinema, um <laughs> It's the, it has a hypnotic effect on the people watching. They just can't tear their eyes away from the screen. And we have to do a quick gloss over. The, the wizards have had a delightful journey sneaking out, like the senior wizard, sneaking out to go see this sort of lesser thing yeah. because, for intellectual reasons. Oh, yeah, because up until this point, they've not been interested at all and then they start sort of <laughs> thinking about it and they see the movie poster and they recognise that it's Victor and they know that he's yeah. a student there and they make some excuses to go see the film um, because you know, it would you know, it wouldn't be good for the faculty to be seen to be yeah. watching popular oh, entertainment. So it was just for learning. Yeah. Just... yeah, yeah. <laughs> As they blag their way in, pretending not to be wizards. <laughs> One of my favourite bits <laughs> is that they pretend to have false beards by just getting some little bits of wire yeah. and twiddling them into their real beards, <laughs> so it looks like they're wearing false ones. Yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, as well, I like the that scene with the cinema and that really sort of ghoulish, quite creepy. Scene. I mean, as well, I think it intentionally recalls the way that people often talk about film as a literal enactment of Plato's cave, um, you know, with the, the, the myth of the cave, the idea that, you know, um, Plato used it to, to suggest this idea of pure form that we only see shadows of, of actual happenings. And, you know, people, of course, have taken this to be a metaphor for cinema or even literalization mm. of it um and so you know seeing it in that play with the screen as sort of what's behind the screen um is i think really that's the way that a lot of people have talked about film over its history yeah which mm. is really interesting to see that that play out yeah. mm. and victor's really saved by by gaspode who's been fighting against the loyal dog trope um he's he's just eating out at mm. um Hargus House of Ribs, which has been strongly advertised throughout the film. Oh, yeah, or tried to be. Actually, yeah. we kind of glossed over that, but yeah. Dibbler tried, he has to finance the film somehow, so he just sells advertising. Yeah. But like in every minute of the film, Great. including like the famous line where someone says, well, frankly, my dear, I could yeah. really go for a plate full of amazing fiddles. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the banner like that gets the, the nephew slash director gets rid of where instead of like a heraldry thing, it's... um. It's just oh, all about yeah. Harga's house of ribs and the fireworks that I'd rigged to go off to say like house of ribs, something yeah, like yeah. that. Mm. <laughs> Great value. So good. The dog comes up and Laddie, who's gotten all the credit for being the wonder dog and saving things, is barking furiously. No one's listening. It's not till Gaspar does that thing where he just puts his cold nose on, oh, yeah. on Victor that he wakes up and sort of mm. manages to wake up Ginger. Yeah. Mm. And they realize that it's all going wrong. Mm. Um, and it goes even more wrong because suddenly something's climbing out of the picture yeah. screen and not just anything because it's the thing that was on the screen at the time, which was 
giant ginger. Mm. And it's a, it's clearly like they never quite say how big the screen is, but when she first climbs out of the screen, she's like, I think 10 feet tall or something. Yeah. Like really. I think they she, do say that she's 50 foot tall. Yeah, she gets, oh, to the, she gets bigger once she leaves yeah, the cinema, uh, yeah. I think. Yeah. But yeah, she gets fit just like the attack of the 50 foot. Exactly. Woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And this is, this is where, you know, this is the kind of real climactic scene of the book when the, the creatures come out. And because once they start coming out of the screen, that kind of breaks the spell because these people watching the film and paying attention and being wrapped by it is the thing that gives mm. the things on the other side the power to come through because all through that it's been these nameless, shapeless, Things from the dungeon dimensions mm. that have been looking for a way in. And the idea of Hollywood itself is not necessarily evil, but the way that it weakens reality by creating this whole th- unreal reality of, mm. of cinema um, is what gives them a way to get into the real world. And I just, I love that as an idea to tie those two things together. For sure. Absolutely. And it's, you know, that same thing as well with, you know, the the beauty of film is that it shows us, danger and spectacle at a remove in that the the screen is what enables and also limits film simultaneously and that you know it it shows the amazing spectacle but uh, and we want it to engulf us even in the book they talk about oh, if only we could add sound um and you know this this sort of that i mean that's throughout film history even today you know with sort of like well uh, you know 10 years ago let's add digital 3d and today with 4d cinemas and alice um, huxley's brave new world feelies yeah, oh, yeah yeah or in um even in uh, blade runner the mood organs and Ooh. stuff like that you know yeah. that mm-hmm. yeah but um this idea that we want to be engulfed by cinema or vr you know the same same sort of urges but it's like but if it became real it would actually be horrible oh yeah um so it's it's great i think that's just that thematically ties everything together with the the breaking of the screen moment mm. and mm. they they finally use what's it chekhov's octocellulose mm. and um oh, yeah yeah that's right they kill the odium by the the dogs end up taking this the flame in to burn the film really quickly stop more things coming through yeah because mm. victor like gets everybody out but he's he started to become a hollywood hero using the magic of hollywood to to defeat these creatures yeah so he gets everybody out he piles up all the cellulose and then he doesn't have a match so it's the dogs that have to go in to light it and then we essentially have a king kong sequence yep. where the 50 foot woman takes yep. a screaming librarian ape into her hand and climbs up a building yeah. and that's yeah. just so wonderful yeah and at the same time rid cully uh, and, and the, the bursa are flying around on a broomstick, <laughs> yeah, and he's yeah, trying yeah. to shoot it with his crossbow. Yeah, um, and it and it, they do hit it at one point, and it starts to bleed, and that's when he says, "Oh yeah, if it bleeds, we can kill it." <laughs> yeah, I'm just sad they didn't do a Jaws reference at that point as well. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, it's Gonna also need a bigger broomstick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bit um, Ghostbusters as well, which in, in itself is a reference to King Kong, but with the Stay Puft character of sort of the accidental hilarious monster. But, I mean, as soon as I realised that's what was going on with the King Kong, I was like, where's the line? When when are we, when are we going to get the line? Of, oh, you know, yeah. Between all of them, they managed to knock it off the tower. Hmm. And it tries um, to find the form that will survive a fall and ultimately discovers that's a corpse. Yeah. Yeah. One reference I I found when I was reading up about the book that I didn't realize is that death appears, has a little tiny Mm. cameo at this point to reap the soul of the thing. Yeah. And he says, you belong dead. 
Mm. Which is a reference to the Boris Karloff Frankenstein film. Yeah, the mm. the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when yeah. at the end he says, "We belong yeah. dead." As yeah, I mean that's a great film as well. But I was expecting "Twas Beauty That Killed the Beast," and they they do that relatively straight with the great nose of fall, but, <laughs> which yeah. is a great addendum. I was expecting it to be the other way around though, because of the situation. I was sort of like, are they going to do? Twas beast that killed the beast. <laughs> but um, yeah. actually, it's probably funnier the way that that Terry wrote it. <laughs> it actually, that, I mean, it's a recurring thing through the book where he'll use like that sort of yeah. fairly straight line or reference that's pretty straight up to Hollywood, and then someone undercuts it with yep. a comment and goes, "That'd be ridiculous." Yeah, you know? and I I love those moments in the book, and that that was one of the great ones. After that's defeated, everyone has to rush back to Hollywood. To deal with the actual source of the problems. Ginger thinks, oh, everything's going to be fine. And Victor's like, no, because he gives the book to the librarian and the librarian reads it and immediately like turns to the back of the book and goes backwards through it. He's like, I had it backwards all along. It's not a man standing behind a gate waiting to come out. It's a man standing in front of a gate. He's a guard. He's actually the good guy. He's going to Mm. save us. We have to go and revive him so that he can stop the things coming through in Hollywood. And she was trying to wake him up because she's descended from the high priestesses. And there's all those sort of hints to that through the book where they keep mentioning that it's a bit weird that a possessing force is actually concerned about people's well-being because like she sprinkles thumbtacks on the floor to hopefully wake her up if she goes sleepwalking. Which is game. And, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, pretty game. <laughs> but the thing like, you know, the possessing thing picks them up rather than lets her just mm. walk on them. And when uh, Victor's trying to watch her to stop her, it doesn't like just smack him in the head. It like, tears up the bed sheets to make ropes and ties him up mm. so that he's not injured, but he still can't stop her. So, yeah, there are hints there that, mm. that it's uh, the other way around. So on the road back, um, the wizards do the classic thing where they they go into a shed and then oh. two farmers watching go, oh, it's going to be like in the, the clicks where they're going to come out the other side and it's going to be chickens and a crash. And then the, the other one goes, oh, well, <laughs> that's full of cabbage. That can't happen. But then the chickens thing yeah. does happen. Oh, that was so good. Yeah. And I also challenge it. you to watch a film and not see a chicken in some form or another. Like it's rare. When to... someone crashes into a barn or something. No, yeah. just um. try and watch a film where there <laughs> isn't a chicken either like just around mm. or being eaten. Because oh. I, well, a friend pointed that out to me one time. I'm like, you're, you're, you're wrong. Like not mm. 99% of films have a chicken in them, but they do. Wow. At least 99% of the ones I've seen. Oh, not, no. I'm not a film Star academic. But... <laughs> There's no chickens in Star Wars. <laughs> That's true. Sci-fi films. Yeah. They get a sort of a past, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Film yeah. set on Earth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where feasibly yeah. there could be a chicken, there yeah. will be a chicken. Oh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. This is going to be one of those things now where we'd never thought about it before, but now it's been mentioned, yeah. we're going to notice it everywhere. No yeah. one steal my thesis idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so they go back and they find it's a Mary Celeste kind of situation. Everyone's just recently left the food still warm and they find that the cave has been opened up again. Detritus is holding it up. And they can't hear anything. Yeah. Not only is the fog there, but there's no sound. Victor and Ginger and the librarian go into the cathinema. But not Gaspar and Laddie because they're presumed dead. Yes, in the rubble of the odium, which they blew up to kill the Victor creature. Mm -hmm. And everybody from Hollywood is in there watching the screen and it's becoming more real. There's going to be things coming through it again. And they're like, we've got to figure out what to do. And they all go behind the screen. But Ginger's protesting silently. I don't know what to do. Like, I don't actually remember. I was always asleep when I did this. I just sort Mm. of woke up. But they they notice behind the figure, there's a big round disc sort of suspended there. And I love my favorite moments. They they give the book to Ginger. It's like, just try reading it. Like, sort of like pointing at it. But she's noticed something that happened earlier. And she looks down at the 
book and she looks sort of out the back and she throws the book, which is like the second Discworld book almost in a row where someone throwing a book is like part of the climax of the yeah. book. And it bounces off the gong and it makes a noise and everything else is silent, but the gong can be heard. Mm. And that's how she figures out. She'd heard somebody tap into it earlier, um, which I love that she gets that moment of, I don't know how to do it, but she does. She figures it out. Uh, and so Deirdre just smashes the gong and it just makes a huge noise and it wakes up the golden man which is of course the the gong is the final yeah. reference to the opening uh, yeah. studio logo my it's favorite rank corporation is yeah. that what they're called yeah. i actually wrote in my notes i wrote rank and bass and i'm like i'm sure that's not quite right <laughs> yeah. and, but also to side point like awards being gongs and oscars being an award yeah, great mm. and Mm. What are they saying about the what's he saying about the Oscars? Is it like mm. if we don't like have this mutual admiration society where we give out awards to actors <laughs> yeah. and filmmakers, monsters are going to come and he like does suck say us into he a role? It happening in all these alternate universes in one mm. way or another, and like, that maybe everywhere there's moving pictures, there's like, an mm. Osric or an Oswald who's yeah. to save you from them. But is it like because when actors get too good, they get given one to protect them from the monsters using them to climb <laughs> into the real world? Is that like <laughs> not very clear? Is it? Um, yeah. But as like, but but kind of is. Like, I guess, well, I guess so. Yeah. So like, Daniel Day Lewis is doing like it's is really a risk yeah. factor for yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's gonna let monsters in from, from the the void beyond. So better yeah. like surround him with. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah. But mm. this is and this is the climax. This is where the the people start to wake up because once the golden man is awake, the thing that's trying to get out into reality sees him as the bigger threat. And so it releases its hold on all the people in the cinema. Um, they get evacuated. And there's that last bit of Hollywood magic as part of the heroic sort of journey where Victor says to Ginger, no, we have to be the last ones out. Just as earlier, he said, like, you know, I can arrive in the nick of time, but I have to play fair, which means I have to spend the whole time getting there. I'm not allowed mm. to just sort of have a bit of a rest and then and then turn up. And so they wait. And just as the thing is trying to get out, the gold man swings his sword and destroys it and it starts to bring down the whole place. So they, they try to get out, but the tunnels collapse. They have to swim out under the sea. Final um, act brings down the house. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but they make it. They make it out and Hollywood is destroyed and Vic's got that nice line. They were right. We really never will work in this town again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there yeah. just sort of ties things up nicely. Like Detritus and Ruby, whose relationship we haven't talked about, sort of got, she flips the gender roles and hits him with a rock in mm. Trollish tradition um yeah. the dogs are rescued oh, well laddie's rescued and gaspard is left to rescue himself um mm. but i really genuinely thought that laddie was gonna die i was like good boy laddie's gonna die mm. in this scene i yeah. can't believe well, it well but. apparently originally gaspard did die but the editor and the first readers who gave Pratchett feedback were like, no, don't give <laughs> the dog. We love him too much. So and there's that moment where the last vestiges of Hollywood magic not only, you know, sort of make Detritus and Ruby have a bit of a sing and dance number, but they also like save his life at the last mm. minute, give him a happy ending. Play mm. it again, Sham yeah. is in that moment. That was that. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and then the elephants arrive. Oh, that was so good. <laughs> Oh, mm. and but, um, they, they turn up and they're just like, do you, do you know, where's, how do we get to Hollywood? He's like, too late, mate. There's yeah. no Hollywood. And it's Colin and uh, Nobby at the gate. Mm. Uh, and they just, that, that last line, and Nobby's like, oh, just let me be the one to tell Diplo that his <laughs> thousand elephants are here when he's got no money left. <laughs> he's lost all his money. And it finishes on an abandoned lot, essentially, with the mm. Hollywood magic sort of fading. Mm. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I, I don't know 
much about Pratchett's writing process mm. or anything like that. I've I've never really looked into it. Um, but I often wonder with the books of his that I've read, and certainly with this one, with the gong moment, mm. it often feels to me like he has a great idea for an image at the end of the, of the I was going to say film, the end of the book, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and sort of works backwards from there. I'm thinking of um, like small gods with the turtle being dropped from the um, eagle, is it, oh, yeah. I think? Yeah, and yeah. sort of like it's sort of like by the time you get to that moment, you're like, of course, it can't be anything else to be the climax of this. Like everything is like set it up to be like this. And like I just, I mean, I, I would be interested to know whether, because I mean, yeah, it just seems to me that there's that of course moment in a lot of Pratchett books where at the end it's like, yeah, it couldn't, the climax couldn't be any other way. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but mm. you're right. It just feels so perfect. And this yeah. and this book, like, and again, this is something we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. Some of the early ones feel like the ending's quite rushed. Mm. Whereas this one, it's such an extended kind of like, you know, amazing sequence of epic events yeah. after another. It just feels so satisfying when yeah. you get to the end. I really, yeah. I really love the end of this book. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, stand up <laughs> in the sense where it's like the really good joke at the end is mm. the callback to the very first joke. There's so much stuff mm. in moving pictures. It's really hard to cover it all. Everything's a reference. Yeah. yeah. Whether yeah. did you have any favorites, Liz, that you wanted to read? My favorite was the reverse Tarzan, but I also very much liked <laughs> the footnote about this fifty seventh strangest thing the librarian had ever seen oh, because he had yeah. a very tidy mind, so he ranked them. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like right. yeah, d- and I always find myself ranking things as well. So I was like, oh, do I have a, a ape librarian? mine <laughs> you could do a lot worse yeah, <laughs> true. that's a pretty good one to have so there's the bit where um the trolls have rescued vince victor and um ginger and they, they look like they're in a compromising position and basically they're making a bit of a how's your father joke except it's some what is the health of your parent <laughs> <laughs> and then Mm. the other one is when the wizards all go off on their adventure and there's a quote that because inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened (laughs) yeah oh hush yeah (laughs) Uh, dan were there any any favorite bits that you have you know i don't i think we've we've actually covered a lot I, i i think i you know i as i've said like my favorite is the sort of not so much the parodies of individual films, but the the sort of parody of film culture mm. and the establishment of Hollywood and, you know, what we take to be blockbuster cinema today. I, I think that was just really well done and um, really playful. So I don't know. I mean, I'd pick, you know, half a dozen of those moments. Maybe it's the <laughs> still the bang grains. I don't know. It <laughs> is pretty mm. great. Uh, actually, there was something that we haven't mentioned that I loved, and that was the very brief discussion of how they're going to film at night. Oh, yeah. um, where they're like, it's too dark. The demons won't be able to see to to make their sketches, uh, and they're like, well, we'll just, you know, we'll 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 film it during the day and we'll pretend like it's a very full moon, uh, which is of course a, a great joke because films today, even mostly night scenes, are filmed during the day. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, they just, you know, in in processing in in post, um, they'll light it differently they'll develop it differently but certainly if you watch pretty much any black and white film night scenes will very clearly have been shot during the day 
And often it's very confusing the first time you see this. You're sort of like, is this just really overcast? Is Like, what are we, what kind of scene is this? Why is everybody looking like they're tired? Or, you know, why are street lights on when it's early afternoon? <laughs> yeah, well, I never really thought about it. I mean, it just sort of made me think of, you know, like Plan 9 from Outer Space, where it's mm. just like, oh, oh, yeah. From one scene to another, it's just radically different lighting and a yeah. different time of day. And you're like, what is happening yeah. with this yeah. film? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, mm. That was great. That mm. was great. The, oh. the phrase is um, shooting day for night. Oh. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, actually, there's one pun that I wanted to put in, and it's just a passing reference. There's no real joke to it, but at one point when they're, we're in Hawanderland where they're getting the elephants, they just make a passing reference to animals called bewilderbeasts. <laughs> and I just really loved that. Yeah. I was like, I want to know about them. That's but we don't find anything out about them. Look, we did get loads of questions, though, for this episode, so we should move on to those to make sure we don't run out of time. Um, and unless anyone's got any other ones they want to read. No, I think if otherwise I'd just be reading you the book. That's true. <laughs> it's so full of good gags. Um, I use more than my usual amount of notes as well. So Yeah, it's definitely one of my faves. Um, but here we go. We've got loads of questions, so let's get straight into them. Danny Sag asked via Facebook, if you had to give any movie from the last 15 or so years a Discworld title, what would they be? Do we have to give the alternate title or just a film that you could imagine Pratchett could come up with something brilliant about? Well, I think, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that the person asking the question probably wants us to come up with the hilarious okay. moving pictures version, but yeah. they don't actually say that in the question. So I'm going to allow it as a <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you have one in mind? Uh, yeah, I don't I don't have the joke version mm-hmm. of it, The but I, I was thinking that actually I'm sure there could be some great play on like, Fifty Shades of Grey, actually. I feel like Fifty Sheds of, I don't know, you know, something or grey spelt bizarrely. Yeah. I feel like there's something there or 49 Shades of Blue, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing I felt most smug about during English class in high (laughs) school was we did the Shawshank Redemption. And you know how in English you're supposed to talk about all the symbolism and stuff. And I, I sort of put up my hand expecting to probably get told off because I was going to use a swear word. But I was like, oh, isn't it interesting how like Red says to Andy, freedom is a shitty pipe dream. And then Andy literally climbed through a shitty pipe, like a sewage <laughs> pipe to freedom. Yeah. And so I just think it could be Shawshank Redemption, which was a terrible name, which killed the box office for that film. Yeah. Mm. Um, just could be called shitty pipe dream. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. That is great. Yeah. I was thinking surely they would have made other blockbusters. Mm. And the big ones that I could think of, it's not even the last 15 years. So it's a bit outside the scope of the question, but like, you know, Titanic or uh, Jurassic Park. Because you never find out what the deal is with dinosaurs on the Discworld, like if they ever had them. You know, I I don't know what you would call it. Like a giant reptile arena or something, you know. Yeah. I couldn't think of a good one for Jurassic Park. Reptile guys. Yeah. Reptile, reptile guys. Like... Um, Isle of Noobs or something, because <laughs> you know the island is yeah like, yeah, yeah. Oh, Isle, that's quite Isle, good. Isle, I don't know how to say it. Nubler or something. Isn't yeah, mm. Isla, Isla Nubla. Or Dibbler starts a theme park. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Well, welcome to Dibbler Park. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's all just giant sausages in buns. Yeah. Yeah. We spared every expense. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to another question. Steve Lee asked uh, via Twitter, 
Uh, apart from the giant woman carrying an ape up a tall building, how many mm. other examples can you name where the events in the story creatively rearrange famous Hollywood tropes and or stories? And he says, you know, for example, the origin of can't sing, can't dance, can handle a sword a little, which we, we did mm. already talk about. But there mm. are so, there's so many. There's so many. And I mean, I feel like we've spoken about yeah. most of them. Well, I mean, the ones that are easy to speak about. Yeah. <laughs> well, Steve comes up with very prescient mm. questions. Like, there's stuff that we often... Have covered mm, so I yeah. I'd have to say the um the Tarzan oh, flip the around yeah. Tarzan both it. his story and the fact that he you know he sets himself up with a rope to swing on and mm. then sort of swings <laughs> into the Tower of Art and splats into it and then becomes a Looney Tune character because yeah. <laughs> he just sort of goes spread eagled mm. um oh there's just yeah I don't know because there's so many films that are mentioned and they're all not quite right like mm. there's you know Hawanderland Smith hunting Balgrogs which is clearly nothing like Lord of the Rings mm. there's just loads of them so Steve I don't know that we've got I think we've mentioned our favorite ones mm. um mm. um that'd be a whole podcast on its own we might <laughs> we might have to do another <laughs> do a special episode where we just list them <laughs> um we've got some other questions Tansy Rainer Roberts on Twitter um asked which is your favorite old movie referenced however thinly mm. Well, I mean, it's kind of a similar question, isn't it? Really? Yeah. I had to look up a lot of the references. Like there was a lot of ones that I w- I'm not familiar. I'm sort of familiar with them through for cultural reasons rather than because I've seen the film mm. or done a study of, of cinema. So there were a lot that I sort of like, I know what that is, but I mm. don't know what that is. Mm. Um, did, did you have, did either of you have favorites that you recognized? I like Jumping the Shark because there's just such a good story. Like the original story about that was mm. an actual pitch. Oh, about, for, a happy for, for happy days, yeah. That oh, mm. wouldn't it be good if we got and it happened. Like, yeah, they yeah. made it. Is so, that is that in there? Where is that reference? Well, it was as in like he talks about adding a shark into oh, flown yeah. away, mm. but so, then realizes that would be too much. Yeah. That'd be, oh yeah. Oh, that's quite <laughs> clever, isn't it? So I I enjoyed that. Um, mm. and also I enjoyed the play again sham because I enjoy getting angry about that not being <laughs> <Yeah>. a real quote. <laughs> There's a film mentioned in passing called A Bold Adventurer, yeah. which might be one of the Indiana Jones films. Mm. I quite I quite like that. Oh, there's one, I, this is one that they mention in sort of passing again is like, you know, beyond the Valley of the Trolls. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which oh. I thought was amazing. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that was one that definitely I liked that a lot. I should have thought of that. Actually, probably my favorite though, and I, I only clocked one of these when I was reading the book. I had to look the other one up, but there's like A Night at the Arena, which yeah. is clearly A Night at the Opera. Yeah. But then there's also Turkey Legs, which is Duck Soup. Oh, oh my god! Right, I didn't get that one yeah. during the book, but um, so those those are a few. Those are a few. <laughs> what would it be? Twenty four hours at the running event or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Early in the book, they talk about this a reference made to the sort of arch- archetypal, you know, villainous thing of silent films, where a woman is sort of tied to a train tracks by a dastardly gentleman with mustaches oh, yeah. and you know etc and that that's actually that's a myth that's that's my um play it again sham uh, <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> because the thing that's fascinating about pre-sound action films is that they are dominated by women women were the action stars of the silent era with films like, well, not films, they were serials. Um, so, um, you know, 10 minute installments every week or, you know, however often. Um, two particular ones. The Perils of Pauline and The Hazards of Helen 
these serials sort of gave rise to this myth of these characters being damsels in distress, like it's where the, the trope comes from. Mm. Um, and this actually comes from a biopic film um, of the same name. I think it was called The ha- Hazards of Helen um, about the actress who starred as Helen. And it this was made in the 1940s and that's where this imagery comes from or sort of subsequently developed and was incorporated into this film. But if you go back and look at the serials, like Helen in The Hazards of Helen is running around on the top of trains and, you know, fighting bad guys. And, um, you know, and I, I, so I guess like that's, again, it's a sort of a myth that, that these early films were about women being rescued and that it reappears in, in this. And, um, actually the reality is far more interesting and, surprising yeah mm. oh that's amazing i didn't mm. know that now i want to watch are they, are they preserved those original serials can uh, you still find yeah them? not all of them um some of them are completely lost as far as we know but um mm. a lot of them are on on youtube um oh, wow. so some of them are reasonably poor transfers but there's i think there's most of the hazards of helen because you know it's sort of like 24 installments over a couple of years um and you can still catch them there's a couple of different actresses that played helen at different points but yeah yeah, worth worth finding. There's some great stunts in some of them. Yeah. It's wow. interesting because I, mm. I was saying earlier um, before we started recording how as progressive as a lot of this book is and as much as I loved it, the dogs had more agency than most of the women in this storyline. Like I felt nothing for Ginger. Like I didn't really get a sense of who she was as a person. Like she literally was a conduit for something else for the entire duration and everyone else is just there as support. So that's interesting as well because there is that kind of damsel in distress vibe mm. through the book. And that's kind of like this parallel to the attitudes that you're saying. Mm. Yeah. Now, Tansy also wants to know who our favorite golden oldie Hollywood stars are. Mm. Well, I mean, Errol Flynn for me. I grew up watching The Adventures of Robin Hood mm. thinking that I was the only person in the world who'd seen it. Um, <laughs> like it was my If I Stayed at Home with a Cold movie. I would get it out. Yeah, so Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, yeah. I can't go past them. It's <laughs> cool. How about you, Liz? Um, well, I've talked about how much I'm impressed by Fred Astaire and now Ginger Rogers based on how I just sort of accepted that it's just fine that she's doing this really complicated thing, which is, I'm going to have to think mm. about deeply what that says about me as a person. But um, Vivian Lee, I think, is my mm. favourite because she suffered from that. She was so beautiful that people didn't take her seriously, which really on top of other things, impacted her mental health quite badly. And that's just a curse that seems to have hit a lot of Hollywood mm. women. So I just find her very fascinating, very tragic, very talented figure. Mm. It's interesting. Of course, Olivia de Havilland and Vivian Lee are both in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> so huh. it's all intersecting with it's the book. Yeah. <laughs> Which was the last film that my cinema I worked at in Adelaide showed before oh, really? it shut down. Huh. Oh, they went out with wow. a bang. Yeah. Did they go out with some banged grains as well? (laughs) Always with the banged grains. Didn't burn down the (laughs) theatre. Errol Flynn's one of mine too, although I'm not an aficionado of early cinema, but Captain Blood is my favourite because I'm such a tragic for pirate stories. But Mm -hmm. I really like Catherine Hepburn Mm. and Jimmy Stewart. I'm always a sucker for Jimmy Stewart. Uh, We've got a couple couple more questions. Um, We'll see if we squeeze them in. Um, one specifically for you, Dan, <laughs> from Steve Lee also, once he found out you were going to be our guest, mm. who'd be your dream pick for composer for a big screen adaptation of the book Moving Pictures? And mm. you are allowed to pick 
um, a composer who's no longer with us if you think that would be the most amazing? Yeah, I mean, so I do actually have an answer for this. Uh, and it is a composer that's still with us, although he is aged by this point, but still composing. I think that actually Ennio Morricone would make a great composer for an adaptation of this because he has, I think, that eccentric flair that would be needed (laughs) for this film Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, endless creativity with his orchestration, but also because he's done a film that's sort of a love letter to cinema before and that's Cinema Paradiso. And so, you know, I think you can sort of see those things coming together in a really nice package for a filmed version of moving pictures. Oh, wow. Mm. That's a good answer. And, you know, like that's interesting because I just today was looking in a record shop um, and they had the Space 1999 soundtrack, mm. which is by Ennio Morricone. Yeah. I was wow. like, I did not know that. That is amazing. The guy's got incredible range. Oh, he's composed so many films. It's like incomprehensible how many films he's written music for you know like some some years he was writing 30 soundtracks a year i don't i can't really comprehend that <laughs> it's like terry pratchett who's most prolific here he wrote five novels yeah well um we got a couple more questions we'll try and squeeze those in um carolyn brown had a couple um her first one was which of the characters who only appear once in the Discworld series do you wish had made another appearance um, and she she sort of cites Gaspard as one who made his way back, although originally that wasn't going to be the case. Um, and she liked Imp from Soul Music. But, I mean, I, for starters, what do we think about Victor and Ginger? Like, would we have liked to see more of them? No, they'd have married them off and I'm, that's boring to me. Mm. Yeah. What about if one of them had come back without the other? I didn't get to know Ginger well enough to see if I'd like to see her come back. Victor I found interesting, especially with his whole like wizard background. I think that could have been a really interesting spin-off and he could have actually probably replaced Rincewind in a, that kind of series, potentially. Yeah, like as someone who's sort of a wizard but not really a wizard. Yeah, because um, as we've talked about before, Rincewind kind of ran his course with the wizard who's incompetent, but Vincent, Vincent Victor, I keep getting them wrong, um, <laughs> is endlessly competent, just doesn't really want to be a wizard. So mm. it's like the opposite. Yeah. Mm. Um, Dan, you've you've read a few of the books. Are there any characters that struck you that yeah, you liked? Look, I agree. I think you could have a little bit more from Victor, but at, at the same time, he was a little bit of a cipher for me. I thought he'd, like there wasn't a lot of character to cling on to. Um, yeah, I mean, Rock. Yeah. Does, does does Rock yeah. turn up again? No, I, yeah. you know, I I was thinking that because some of the trolls in Hollywood, Detritus comes back as quite a major character, mm. but yeah, you don't really see any other. Mm. trolls again and mm. I, yeah rock was so good and yeah. they're smart considering how warm it is there when it's supposed to be cool air makes them more intelligent but yeah, <laughs> yeah. hollywood magic it's hollywood mm. magic yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's one last one from carolyn brown also on twitter is gaspo another avatar for himself by which i think she means terry pratchett in the vein of vimes and this is an idea that's sort of come up on the podcast before that maybe sam vimes is a character that pratchett could use to just say what he meant um, and have someone say what he wants to say, um, which I don't, you're not necessarily a fan of that theory, are you? Liz? No, because I feel like he peppers his opinion out through all of it and he just releases it like different valves on each of them. So I don't like maybe more so than others, but not so much that this is a character specifically there to speak for Pratchett. Mm. So I don't, and mm. same with Vimes, I don't think that's it. He probably, as all writers do, have their favorites of the characters and those are the ones that agree with you more but yeah i don't necessarily think so much a stand-in or an avatar Mm. i I think gaspo does have that 
element of just sort of being this straight talk character, but he doesn't, he also waffles on a lot. And, you know, just as mm. someone, as, as Victor says to him at one point in the book, you know, you do go on with a lot of crap sometimes. <laughs> um, so mm. I think Gaspard is meant to be that character who, yes, is on, he's onto it sometimes, but also he's just got his, he's very set in his ways and his beliefs mm. about, you know, how dogs and humans should you know, interact, even if he doesn't always follow his own advice. Mm. Well, there's a certain advantage, I think, to inventing a character that has a kind of deep connection to the world through their animal senses, but has only recently sort of achieved consciousness in the Mm. way that we consider it. So sort of born yesterday, but also has a deep connection to the world. So that's why they're the, the kind of the truth teller character to some degree. Yeah. Mm. And, and interestingly, mm. I mean, we didn't mention this, but Gaspard as, as he's saved at the end of the book, he does go back to being a, a regular dog. I mean, albeit mm. still Gaspard, but no longer being able to talk and think like a human or see in color. And so when he is brought back in men at arms, as we discussed on our very first episode, he has to, you know, invent a new reason as to why Gaspard can talk and mm. bring back that sort of magic. Retconning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and he doesn't necessarily remember his time in Hollywood. He never mentions it. Maybe he's a new Gaspode. Yeah. Named for the legendary Gaspode of the Clicks. <laughs> yeah. Um, Interesting. I think, I, actually, to, to go back to Carolyn's first question, um, I think I would definitely read another book about Tepic. Oh yeah, mm. like I think I think either of them would be really interesting characters to bring back. Mm. It's sort of a shame that they only ever were in the one book, mm. which I think we mentioned at the time. You know, would we like to see more of them? The answer is absolutely yes. <laughs> I'd probably read a book about Miss Cosmopolitan, who's been like a background character of this, the one who the, the wardrobe oh, mistress. Yeah. Who... And, and she does reappear in a oh, few yeah. of the other books, but only as a minor character. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the podcast. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an honour. Thank you both for having me. Um, it's been great. I certainly appreciate both of your insights into the world of cinema history. Which I learned a- so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Once again, if you want to hear more of Dan's voice and insights into film and particularly music in film, uh, definitely listen to the Art of the Score podcast. Mm-hmm. But Dan, that's not the only project that you've got going. Mm. By the time this episode of Pratt Chat comes out, your ABC TV show will have started. Yeah, it will have, which is uh, a huge and different project than I'm used to working on. I've usually done stuff that involves my my voice only. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, so it's called What Is Music, and it does pretty much what it says on the box. Uh, uh, but we look at, uh, I guess, the the how and why of music, ranging from industry to speaking to musicians to recording studios to a hell of a lot of kind of science communication which i wasn't expecting um i've had cameras shoved down my throat and uh my brain has been stimulated for creativity while i was improvising at the piano and stuff like that so really an incredibly broad uh range of answers to what music is uh, which has been fascinating, and that that'll be all online uh, on on YouTube and iView, um, but internationally available if you if you're not in Australia as well. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, what is music. Watch mm-hmm. out for that. It's already it'll already be out there by the time you're listening to this. Mm. And then there's one last project that you've got coming up that I know is one of your favourite uh, things yeah. you've been working on for a long time. <laughs> yeah, you have 
a book about mm. Star Wars. I do. Yes. I feel like I've kind of won a, a lottery or, or done one of those jobs, you know, like that, that you shouldn't really have, like who can write a book about Star Wars? It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called Star Wars After Lucas. Huh. Uh, subtitle a critical guide to the future of the galaxy um, and it's it's with an academic press but it's meant to be readable by normal people by uh, yeah. by we non-academic well types. yes yeah it's not filled with jargon in other words mm. um and uh, that will be released on of course May the 4th next year. (laughs) It's a book about the post-Lucas era of Star Wars up until and including uh, The Last Jedi. I sort of had to submit the manuscript for final edits just before Solo came out. So I I can't really include any of that in there. But um, otherwise, yeah, it was incredibly fun to do and um, which is different to a lot of academic work on Star Wars in that it um, focuses on the, on the films as kind of texts, whereas a lot of Star Wars academia, insofar as it exists, is sort of fan studies and transmedia and that mm. kind of thing, whereas I'm just kind of interested in the films themselves. I'll, uh, I'll definitely be looking out for that one as well. Yeah. And I've only got a pop-up Star Wars book at the moment, so I feel like it's time to sort of level up in terms of yeah. <laughs> reading. <laughs> That's great. Though. Yeah, it's very good. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Pratt Chat. Um, you've been spreading the word. There's been some of you who've been reviewing us on iTunes, which is great. It helps people to find us. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, we'd love you to let people know about it. Uh, and yeah, if you do write a review or um, even just give us a rating on iTunes, it really does help people find us. We, we go, we become more prominent in the search ranking. You know how algorithms work, <laughs> um, or rather none of us do, but we know that they do work in some mysterious way. But look, we will be back next month and we've decided uh, we're going to stick with the Discworld for Mm. another month. What are we reading next month? Reaper Man. Oh, yes. We're going to see the return of death and the introduction of a very special character to many people's hearts, the grim squeaker himself, the death of rats. Um, And we'll be discussing that book with special guest Sarah Pearson. We'll we'll talk about why she's on the show when she's here, but we're really looking forward to having her on. Now, if you want to ask any questions about this episode and get into um, the discussion, please use the hashtag PrattChat10. But if you'd like to ask us questions in advance of our next episode discussing Reaper Man, please use the hashtag PrattChat11 um, and get them in as soon as possible if you want us to answer them on the podcast so we can make sure we have them in front of us while we're recording. Until we see you next time, uh, we will fade away into the sunset like all good Hollywood heroes do. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Dan Golding. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by Dave Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast or on the web at pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat10. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.